This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the 1984 debut studio album from one of the all-time greats, Wasp. Are they really one of the all-time greats? I mean, I yes, guess they this are. Is what... <laughs> and this episode is going to prove it. This is what we're going to get into, I it suppose. Is, it is yeah. indisputable. <laughs> Although I have a feeling you may dispute it. But that, it is well, indisputable. They are a they are a fascinating band in yeah in many respects. But yeah, okay, let's yeah. You, know, you nailed that it, for, dude. That I think that word is the theme of this show. They are a fascinating right, band. Yeah, they're certainly not dull <laughs> or uninteresting to to look at and talk about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's save that for later in the show. Uh, instead, let's now get into our uh, follow-up from the previous episode. First of all, um, we have uh, several new patrons since the last episode. Atoms the Third, what a great username, Thomas Kurz, and Justin Nipper, who is a returning patron, I believe. So thank you, Justin. Uh, welcome. welcome and welcome back. Yeah, welcome all. Uh, I will also remind all of our Patreon supporters out there that the Encore poll is now open. So I opened it a couple of weeks ago. There's been a flurry of nominations, but I'm pretty sure that there are some members out there who haven't. Uh, uh, nominated yet so if you haven't and you you've been meaning to you still have a few weeks uh it will stay open for a couple of weeks um at which point i will close it uh and then in the next episode after this one is when we'll do the selection and then the episode after that will be the encore episode so yeah if you haven't nominated yet and you want to or maybe you've changed your mind and you want to you know nominate something else go to the thread on patreon uh, log into Patreon and go to the post, go to the thread and make your nomination there. Reminder, we only take nominations for the Encore and for the listener choice, but in this case for the Encore poll, in that thread on Patreon. We don't take them over email or Twitter or on the Facebook group, nothing like that, because we want to make sure that only patrons have the chance to nominate. So go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and uh, yeah, nominate an album if you haven't already. And as always, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for uh, well for supporting the show and helping make it possible, helping you know defray our costs for servers and domain names and stuff, which believe me, go up every year as <laughs> everything right, is going up. Yeah, as everything is going up, uh, you know, at the moment every year. So uh, yeah, you know, more than ever right now, we'd really appreciate everyone's support. So thank you. Still time to get those Megadeth and Winger picks in before <laughs> the final selection. I tell you what, I've been surprised at uh the not group think exactly but at how many you know entries we've had where people have nominated either the same band and the same album or the same band and a different album like we have well, i'm looking at the list now we already have four nominations for black sabbath's heaven and hell like specifically that album it's uh, a great great yeah, pick we have like uh four nominations for mastodon various albums uh, another three for another Motorhead album, things like that. I'm surprised at, yeah, the sort of how many people are... T- because the thing is, just to explain again, uh, obviously we only pick one, and you know, one nomination from this list, but it is a r- completely random selection. So if you choose the same band and or album as somebody else, you increase the chances of that band yeah. being picked. It's like it's the NBA lottery. Pick. You have more ping pong balls in the, you know, container. Is is that how that works? I don't know. <laughs> I believe so. I think the worse your re- the the more lousy that your record is, the more ping pong balls you get in the in the thing. 
Oh, I see. Kind of, so I, kind of like the NFL draft. Yeah, and I only know that because right. well, NFL draft I think just goes to the worst record, right? With the NBA, yeah, yeah. you uh, the worst the the more terrible your record is, the more chances you have to potentially oh. get the pick. But it is in fact a lottery, just like oh, our uh, pick here. And I so, uh, case in point, I believe it was the Houston Rockets who had by far the worst record, and they ended up with like the fourth pick like they didn't even get one two or three because their ball Um, just didn't come up because their ball didn't come up right and so uh, just proof that you can have a lot of ping pong balls in there and still not get the pick that you want but you can increase (laughs) your chances um in the nba they basically have to tank and sabotage their own season but here you just have to nominate you know from several people the same album (laughs) yeah well or even just the same band you know yeah true Uh, so yeah, as I say, if you haven't done it already, go and make a nomination now and we'll make that selection during the recording of the next episode after this, which will be, oh no, I'm not going to tell you that, that you'll have to wait till the end of the episode. Ooh, ooh, almost, <laughs> the, almost an edit note there. <laughs> <laughs> but what about last episode then? Let's talk about that. Well, so we have, we have two and I'll go, I'll briefly jump between them because um, our last episode was a backstage pass episode. Yes. And so we did not get to talk about the comments that we got on the Venom episode, which was the episode before that. Indeed. Um, So real quickly, I'll just pull a couple of the Venom ones. Of course, we did Welcome to Hell by Venom. Uh, Simon said, an epic pick, Anthony Johnston. Such a great album. Uh, Ben Christopher Smith said, fantastic. Bloody love Venom, so I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. Wayne said, takes me back. I seem to remember the phrase, lay down your soul to the gods of rock and roll as a (laughs) Mac warning sound. Yeah. So, uh, just for some context, there, Wayne is a guy I used to work with many years ago in a pre-press bureau and design agency. Uh, and yes, we used to customize the hell out of our Macs. These were very early, you know, Macintosh uh, design stuff. We used to customize the hell out of them, and that was one of the things you could do was uh, record your own audio as, like, you know, alert chimes and stuff. <laughs> uh, Phil said. Venom. This takes me back to somewhere in 1982-83. My little brother, who was three years younger than me, would scour the import bins and metal section for the most evil-looking records he could find. Thanks to him, we discovered Queensryche's EP and Iron Maiden Killers and Number of the Beast, but he also brought home the following. Slayer, Show No Mercy, Exodus, Bonded by Blood, Metallica's Kill Em All, Merciful Fate, Don't Break the Oath. That's a great cover. Uh, and of course, Venom, Welcome to Hell. He said, I couldn't stand any of them in 82-83, but Venom was just so awful to my ears that I literally banned them from being played while I was in the bedroom. Perks of being the older brother in a shared bedroom. He said, I honestly tried to give this another shot all these decades later, thinking maybe my development for an appreciation of some extreme metal in the last 20 years would give me a new appreciation of it. Nope, I just can't. As someone said in the White Lion thread, life is too short to listen to music this bad. Um <laughs> Which was a little disappointing to hear from Phil, because, you know, as hair metal fans, I mean, we get that every every time we bring up an album. Um, let's see. Uh, David said, apparently Venom were voted worst band in the Kerrang! Readers poll 10 years in a row. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> I can believe it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Phil also said, why is it that every time Brian compares Venom to Motley Crue or Twisted Sister, I literally wince as if I've been <laughs> gut punched? I don't know, man. There's, everything's connected. That's why. 
David said, I'm conflicted listening to this episode. I never got around to listening to Venom properly before, partly because of the satanic gimmick, which tends to bore the pants off of me, and partly because, not unrelatedly, I strongly dislike modern black metal and had been led to believe they were the starting point for that rubbish. So I was pleasantly surprised to put on the album and hear basically just a less polished Motorhead. Uh, I love Motorhead, so that's great. The satanic stuff is uh, there and very stupid, but it's fine. There's a touch of discharge to the sound, but I'm not convinced that's deliberate, as it's all about the lack of production. They're not a very enthusiastic Motorhead style. They're just a very uh, enthusiastic Motorhead style punk-influenced metal band of the period, not a million miles away from, say, Tank, in terms of songwriting style. And I nearly laughed out loud when I heard them playing the riff from Queen's Stone Cold Crazy for the last track. <laughs> All of which is to say that I really enjoy the album and don't necessarily disagree about their influence. Uh, I have real trouble going along with the idea that they're so pivotal in the evolution of metal, which I think was a common theme. Of yeah, the although there were, yeah, although there were also an, an awful lot of people going like agreeing with you and going, oh, actually, yeah, no, this explains quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I think you know it's that's something that can be debated but the fact that they had an influence i don't think can be because yeah they were so early the discharge mentioned i'm not, i can't remember if i mentioned discharge on the episode i certainly mentioned the d beat uh because the first track on that album literally opens with a d beat song um but i'm not sure if i mentioned discharge themselves discharge first album hear nothing see nothing say nothing uh is a classic of sort of like i mean technically it's post punk but it's kind of Again, it was really early in the development of heavy music, and it is really, really raw and heavy, uh, and you know, laid down the foundation for a lot of metal of the, well, metal of the early '80s stuff. Like you know, Motorhead were doing similar sorts of things. It was that kind of era, but they also influenced a lot of regular, what we might call regular metal bands as well. You know, some of the thrash bands even that came along in the '80s. So they're worth checking out. Uh, maybe we'll do them on a future episode. Who knows? But uh, they're certainly worth checking out if you haven't listened to Discharge's first album before. Uh, Chris said, just finished up the episode. My only prior experience with Venom was once when I was a teenager back in the heady days of the 80s satanic panic. A friend of mine's older brother owned a Venom album, and one night we put it on and tried to figure out how to play it backwards to listen to the for evil backwards messages. <laughs> we failed and didn't find any. Thinking back, I believe we were listening to black metal. I don't know if that album actually has any, but obviously we should have tried Welcome to Hell instead, where there's the really obvious one. He said, my only real takeaway at the time was that I thought they sucked so i never listened to them again <laughs> said, so i will admit i expected not to like this album but i was pleasantly surprised by how much i enjoyed it i will definitely be putting this on again when i'm in the mood for some street metal uh on a side note for anyone that dug this i would recommend checking out a band called midnight in my opinion they're the modern day venom very similar style sound and vibe to my ears um i think i recently listened to midnight and I don't think that's a bad comparison. I went and listened to them after reading that comment, and I think it's not a it's not a total you know it's not a one to one comparison. But yeah, I can see I can see why he would say that. And I'll just say uh, I'm going to switch over to the Van Halen episode in a second. But I will say when we since we're talking about Venom, I think there's a kindred spirit there with how I also feel about Wasp. Oh, just interesting. In terms of their of their influence and stuff like that. But, uh, but also just their general approach of, uh, because I think one of the things that just you can't ignore from venom is the energy. You cannot right. ignore yeah. it. Like the energy is just 
so there in everything that they do. And to me, that's, I just really admire that about their stuff. So, so that was Venom. And then the before, last episode. Oh, go ahead. Before we move on, I just remembered it's crust punk <laughs> is what uh, people call discharge. That's what, the, if you're looking for sort of a label to hang them on, yeah, crust punk. Because I remember there has been a few crust punk revival bands in the last few years who all uh, mentioned discharge. I'm not sure how many other bands fell under that label, but uh, yeah, what a bizarre subgenre crust punk <laughs> so there you go you got street metal and crust punk to start your day off with today so um but let's talk about van halen now because our last episode was the backstage pass with john mason mm-hmm. and we and talked, it was a great episode uh, yeah we talked about women and children first from van halen and lots of great comments on that one um Todd said, uh, 100% agree with Brian about Van Halen's hits versus their deep cuts. When CD burners became affordable, the first CDs I made for myself and several friends were uh, rest of Van Halen compilations. <laughs> if I remember correctly, Fool's Romeo Delight, uh, Take Your Whiskey Home, and Could This Be Magic were tracks I included off of uh, Women and Children First. Uh, Phil said, I totally agree with the assertion that Van Halen is the ultimate greatest hits band. It's probably why, even though I've owned every Roth-era Van Halen album, I never considered them a favorite. For me, outside of Van Halen 1, the other albums I the other albums had one or two songs I really liked, and the rest were just okay to me. And for me, the one or two songs I really loved were the hits. Uh, it's why, to this day, when I get a hankering for some Van Halen, my go-to is veritable Van Halen playlist, and no specific album. So I think uh, I think a lot of people um, kind of feel that way about that. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Craig said, kids are meant to rebel against their parents. Good point. Maybe I'll try getting my kids into modern hip-hop, and hopefully they'll rebel and listen to metal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe said, it's funny to hear John say this album didn't have hits. I didn't realize there was only the one single. In the early 80s, the rock station in Cincinnati played Cradle and Everybody Wants Some a lot. Take Your Whiskey Home got a fair amount of airplay as well, so my teenage, uh, so teenage me assumed they were hits. Somehow I heard Loss of Control, which I think is what inspired me to eventually buy this album, since it wasn't on the radio. Um, wow, it, it, that's quite something if that track <laughs> is what inspires you to buy the album, because it's like nothing else on the album. <laughs> I know, but just goes to, to show you, right? Like, is it, there's... And that's the thing about like listening to the whole album and just the way that people listen to just songs today. You know what I mean? It's like you, there's so much opportunity to sort of miss a song that could end up really resonating with you, right? Because it's a song that you're just never going to hear, you know, back then True, on the radio, yeah. but now um, won't show up in you know the major playlist that you might be on uh, on any of whatever streaming service you're you're on. Um, I'm a ben, dinosaur, I admit. I still listen to whole albums. I mean, like buddy, in my own library and on the occasions when I do go and check out a band on Spotify because they've been recommended, you know, by, say, somebody in the Facebook group or something, I do just, I listen to a whole album right the way through. I'm such a, an old Absolutely. <laughs> to me, I'll, I'll never be able to not do that. I feel like it's, it's like reading one chapter from a book. Like I, can't, like, I can't do that. I have to read the whole thing. I have to... Um, I have to listen to the whole album. And so I'm the same way. Uh, we had several comments about how people really liked John on this episode. Ben yeah, said, yeah, yeah. He what a nice really guy well. John yeah. is. Absolutely <laughs> loved hearing him talk about his religious upbringing and even how Def Leppard albums were a rebellious act of sorts. Um, 
Andrew said, I'm listening to the album. I'm pleasantly surprised Van Halen to me are the poster child of the kind of 80s commercial heavy rock that bores me to tears, though I did enjoy the peak David Lee Roth singles as a kid. So to hear this eclectic, sometimes flat out weird 70s rock album with some big early Alice Cooper energy, although uh, with those putative hair metal choruses still popping up, was a bit of a revelation. I may even check out other early Van Halen, Mm. uh, which was nice. Um, let's see. JD said, John certainly had his coffee for this one. Great energy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, an okay album too. I very much uh, know the band from their hits, which were fun and upbeat and goofy back in the day. So hearing something different from them was an education. While the guitar work is of the highest order, I just can't listen to David Lee Roth's brand of vocal Tourette's with its uh, uhs and ahs and ah yeahs with a straight face. Happy to have listened to the album. Won't need to go back to it. Um, I, I know we must have talked about this during the episode, but I like to me that his showmanship and just his, um, again, his energy that he yeah. adds to every song, I think is what makes him such a great frontman. And to me, yeah, no, d- not the same as being the greatest singer, but certainly from a frontman standpoint. Yeah. We talked about that quite extensively on the episode. I remember that, but yeah, I, I, again, to repeat what we said there, there's no love or hate him there is no denying that he is an incredibly uh you know energetic and entertaining frontman uh, ah! yeah <laughs> yeah i forget what was the isolated track that someone shared oh what was it from i can't remember now yeah where it was just his vocals it was just that yeah it's just full of him going mm, <laughs> it might have been everybody wants some all up well to go back been, yeah um <laughs> Kenneth said, nearly didn't bother listening to this because I have no interest in Van Halen. I really would have let myself down, though. This was so much fun. John, if you ever start a podcast, I'm in. Well, there you go. People want John to start up his own podcast. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Very well-received album, episode, and guest for that one. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, all around good. It was a lot of fun. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, So, I guess then, yeah. So, let's talk about Wasp. Let's talk about Wasp. Um, I mean, you're, you're going to have a lot more than me to say about this, I'm sure, because you clearly have followed this band for years. I'll just briefly tell you, I first came across them because of the UK 7-inch release of Animal, uh, you know, after it was r- removed from the uh, album in the US and banned, uh, I believe, over there from Radio Play. Uh, you know, the one with the Buzzsaw codpiece cover, which just yes. kind of tells you what you're in for. And I think I recall there was a promo pic of the band standing in front of a, a woman chained up with, you know, covered in blood or something. That that rings a bell. Um, but honestly, that is, that's all I knew about them. Like I heard that song. I had friends who bought the single and we all went like, oh, you know, these band are quite amusing. Uh, you know, nice bit of shock value and everything. But that was it. Like, I never followed up. I never followed them as a band. And I kind of assumed they were a bit of a one-hit wonder, which is why I said earlier, you know, when you were saying, like, a classic band, and I'm like, are they really, or are they just a one-hit wonder? It wasn't until listening to this album that I realised I did recognise a couple of other tracks off this album. But I, like, say, I want to be somebody. I could have sung you the chorus of that. I, I knew that chorus, but I didn't know it was them. I actually thought that, that was like a Motley Crue track or something. <laughs> I mean, I, I, which I don't, I think you can certainly be forgiven of because there's a lot of, um, there's actually personal connections there, but obviously a lot of, um, I think, influence and similarity in, in some of that stuff. Right, sure. And for me, I, 
I came to Wasp by way of their live album, Live in the Raw. Oh, okay. And so that was in 1987. So the album that we're going to talk about today is 1984, right? But this album came out in 1987. And I remember seeing the video for Scream Until You Like It because it was on the Ghoulies 2 soundtrack. And for me, I was so I was such a horror fan that I had obviously seen The Ghoulies. And The Ghoulies 2 was a horror movie that was coming out. And if you've never seen Ghoulies or Ghoulies 2, you should go uh, check that out. It's like uh, distant cousin of Gremlins um, with... <laughs> you know, with worse special effects and everything else. But I just remember like, you know, Blackie Lawless with the saw blades on his arms, you know, them singing the Scream Until You Like It song and uh, singing to these puppets that were the ghoulies um, from this movie and stuff like that. And so the Live in the Raw album was the first album that I ever bought. And I think my, I want to say my mom picked it up for me. I always forget the, but it was the first album that I got with the explicit lyrics uh, sticker on it and the oh, cover right. of that album is basically when you said that someone was like chained up on stage there's like this particular set piece that is like a cabinet that opens up and there's like stakes in it and then the person the woman would be like in the middle of that um and there's that on the cover of the live in the raw album except when it's opened up there's a kid looking inside and it's blackie lawless's head on a stake on the front of this um and it says live in the raw and so and what's interesting about that is like that is also kind of the i don't want to say the end of but it was kind of the end of the era of them being the sort of shock rock um right right the outrageous yeah yeah and and very um you know sort of over the top because after that a couple years later was the headless children which was a real turning point um album for them at the time so that's where i came in to wasp and so for me my progression was live in the raw in 1987 and then by 1989 you know i was old enough to be buying my own albums and stuff like that so i think the headless children is probably the first album that i of theirs that i was like oh i know this band i like this band i'm anticipating this album coming out i'm gonna go get this album so that's why those two albums for me are are um sort of special to me in terms of uh wasp because that's where i kind of came into it it wasn't until later years that i really went back and started digging into the previous albums but really all of their albums through the headless children i think are great and i know a lot of people um the crimson idol is their favorite you know we get a lot of i'm sure there's probably recommendations in uh oh it wouldn't be because it's a it's an encore but trust me that will be an encore uh list recommendation that we get in the future for the crimson right, idol right. for sure but um yes so this debut album was released in 1984 the band was formed in 1982 and blackie lawless had been in a band called sister that at one point had randy piper who w- went on to be in wasp uh but also nikki six in it at some point oh, uh, chris okay. holmes was in it at some point um it's funny because nikki has a interview that he does about sister where he talks about his brief sort of time there and he says uh blackie Lawless was my friend and blackie formed a band where he took me and lizzie gray and dane rage who were all together as our little group when we started our own band and became sister he said i remember being in the studio with blackie and blackie is a great songwriter very talented guy and obviously went on to have a huge career with wasp 
But I called my grandparents on the phone and I said, I think I got one. And they said, what do you mean? And he said, everybody in the band is a star. Everybody can really play. And this guy, Blackie, is great. I got a bunch of songs. Lizzie has a bunch of songs. This is it, he said. Um, he said, my grandparents are so happy. And then I called him the ne- back the next day and said, Blackie fired us. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he went on to say, we were green and it was his band and his vision. And rightfully so. We joined his gang and we weren't good enough. Uh, we were green. So we formed our own band, London. And that band ended up being one of the biggest bands in L.A. And then from London, I believe, is where Nikki then went to Motley Crue. Right. Um, and so, yeah. So they briefly were together during that period of time. Blackie also had another band called Sir Circus Circus, uh, After Sister, which was uh, Randy Piper was in that band. And I'm sure some of our listeners are actually a lot more familiar with with the history of Wasp than I am, because like I said, I, I kind of came in a little bit late to that, at least late in the 80s to where they were at that point in time. Um, so then he forms Wasp in this album. Wait, wasn't he before then? Wasn't he also in New York Dolls? He was in the New York Dolls, but I want to say that was like 1975 that that oh, actually happened. that long ago, and, right. Um, wow. In fact, I'll tell you right now. Uh, where was the New York Dolls one? And I want to say it was a very brief time that he was in. Right. I, I read that he wasn't in them for long, but that, yeah, it would definitely predated Wasp. I didn't realize it predated it by yes. quite that much. So according to Wikipedia, take it as you will, it says in 1975, after Johnny Thunders left the glam rock band, the New York Dolls, in the middle of a tour of Florida, the band started auditioning for guitarists. Lawless was hired, but only stayed for the remainder of the tour. Right. Okay. So 1975. So, so 19- by the, wow. Oh, so by ahead. the time he formed Wasp, then he was all, he'd already been you know around in the business for what like six, seven, eight years. Yeah, and there's a, a video of Circus Circus uh, doing a song called Mr. Cool. And some of the songs that he had written before showed up on uh, later stuff, like Sex Drive is a song that he had written before, prior to Wasp Days and stuff like that. But um, yeah, by the time he got to Wasp. He kind of knew what he wanted to do. Yeah, you know, he was I mean? practically a veteran by that point. Yeah, and so, um, and the other thing too, and I'll just say, like, I feel like he does not get credit. Blackie Lawless does not get credit for the musician that he is, or the songwriter that he is, from hmm. people outside of real fans of Wasp. Right. No, I'll, I just don't, I'll go along with that. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. just don't think that he's he's sort of recognized at that. But I will tell you that my favorite thing about getting ready for this episode was watching interviews over the years with him. And there's so many great interviews on YouTube that you can watch, but particularly the 40 year anniversary tour that they have been on. Um, and they did a bunch of stuff in the States back in the fall, like leading up into like December, I think they were there. And he did a lot of like VIP meet and greets mm-hmm. and they were usually before the show. And so he would come out and talk to people and then he would go and, and play the show. And I got to tell you, they're fantastic. He is so humble, open, um, laid back answers every question that comes his way. I mean, there's times where he says, yeah, I can't really tell that thing about, he's working on a book, I guess. And so there's a lot of stuff that's going to kind of show up in the book, but um, he just goes around the room and literally asks everybody like what their question is. And they go through and stuff like that. I watched like a 40 minute interview with him last night, a few days ago, I watched another like 40 minute. He was outside with a bunch of people that were just asking him questions and stuff like that. And just, and he's 66 years old now. Hmm. So he's just, 
you know, and they haven't toured the states a lot because it, it, he's talked in many interviews about how they just didn't get great offers to come back here and tour, and so touring overseas was always more lucrative for them and and stuff like that. But um, just a fascinating guy to listen, tell stories of yesterday, but also talk about stuff. So really, uh, kind of pleasantly surprised. Not that I thought he was a jerk, but just like presently surprised at like how wide open he was in a lot of these interviews about stuff. But if you watch the older interviews, you see a lot of, I think you just see like how earnest he is about the songwriting and the music itself in a way that, I don't know, it feels very genuine to me. Like so many of those interviews you might not assume from the image because the image is in the early days was very, very clearly designed to sort of shock and outrage, you know, and and deliberately be provocative. So you might not assume therefore that he's also a serious musician. Right. And so just on that note of interviews, so he, I watched an interview from 1985 for Skytrax. And he was talking about, the last command, which was the second album that they were doing. And he was going on to say, like, I think the first couple of times people hear this, they might not be sure if they like it or not, but I would rather have it be like that as opposed to a record that you immediate, that you like immediately. And it wears on you quickly. Mm. Uh, he says, as opposed to something that might take a few listens that stays with you for 10 years, he said, five years from now, you're going to listen to this record and you're going to hear things that you've never heard on it before. I guarantee you that. Um, and he was just talking about the different instruments that they were using and, and they were using synthesizers for the second album and stuff like that. But he was basically saying how a lot of times like that will be buried in the mix or like matched to the guitars in a way that you almost don't realize that you're hearing it when you're listening to the album. But like the more you listen to the album, you'll be able to sort of pick that stuff out. And he was kind of talking about it in a way that like it, it he doesn't want it to distract from, you know, what the song is or anything like that but that he was talking just an about extra like some, layer yeah like some of the layers they were adding for the next album and on every interview he would start to get into like the stuff that he was trying to do differently on the next album and stuff like that and so that was one thing that to me was very consistent when he was interviewed is just like talking about the the musical aspect and that just the process and what he was trying to do on each album and stuff like that and how basically like every album was a headspace that he was in and you can't go back and make the same thing even though he would get pressured to make the same album that was successful before and he wanted to do something completely different but he talks a lot in some of those early interviews about the uh sort of stage show which for and and i never got to saw never got to see wasp live and so i didn't get to see the thing that they were most well known for you see glimpses of it in some of the old videos but i don't think there's been a lot of great videos that show like the entire stage show that wasp used to do back in the day especially when they were playing smaller venues um but you you could get a glimpse of it in a movie that i'll talk about in a little bit when we get to one of the songs there but um he talked about he said in one of the interviews for that Skybox interview, a Skytrax interview in 1985, he said, this thing, meaning Wasp, was designed to get people excited. It's a catharsis that's created on stage. He talked about it being a psychodrama, that it was originally designed to be, you know, performed in front of three to 4,000 people. And as the venues got bigger, like everything had to be adjusted and the show had to be adjusted. And then he did an interview with Music Box in 1985 as well, and he, again, just talked about like the image, because that always comes up in every conversation. And he said, image sells tickets to concerts, but music sells records. 
and he would go on to kind of talk about how like I'm, if you don't, not, I'm not sure that's entirely true. <laughs> I think where I can see that being a valid point is I think that sustained sales, right? Okay, I yeah, think, yeah, I, I sure. think that sort of you know anybody who's going to have a successful career in music, you have to have the music to back true. it up. Like for, the image for, over the long term, yeah, okay, yeah. I'll, like I'll the, the, that. the image might get that opening week sales, or you know, but definitely, and images definitely sell. Uh, you know, tickets to concerts. I mean, I talk about Ghost all the time in the stage show that they put on, and what an awesome, mm. like, that's worth me paying money to go see in concert is right. them. Yeah, yeah. You know, or Iron Maiden, you go see Iron yeah. Maiden in concert, right? Like that kind of stuff. And that's definitely what early Wasp was all about. I mean, they used to throw hamburger meat at the crowd, they used to <laughs> pretend to grind up rats on stage and stuff like that. And they had like this torture rack that they would have, you know, scantily clad women in and stuff like that. And so it, it, he would drink quote unquote blood out of a skull on stage and it'd be dripping down his face and his chest and all that kind of stuff. They they wore assless uh, uh yeah, chaps basically. I, I remember on those stage. photos, yeah. And if you look at any of those old <laughs> if you watch any of the old videos, like there's one I think from the Lyceum that they did way, way it might be nineteen eighty four actually that that concert took place. And you could see him and Chris Holmes, Randy Piper not uh wearing regular pants in that one, but uh he had the full spandex on. But Chris Holmes and Blackie Lawless, yep, you can see their rear ends hanging out right on stage. Uh but like all of that together was wasp you know what i mean it was like that whole experience and that that definitely was what they were known for back in the day was just being completely outrageous and i think at some point blackie realized that that was overshadowing the music you know and i think that's why you saw some of the the and plus you can't do that forever you know you can't you can't keep up that that sort of image forever but for well, there's, first, only, there's only so long that you can feel comfortable walking out on stage wearing assless chaps, you know? <laughs> you reach well, a certain I, age and you're like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> well, and I would argue that neither one of them were completely ripped back in the day when they were doing it, uh, you know, in 1984. So it was... Uh, no, but just the sort of general, you know, lithe and skinniness of youth that you have yes, in your, in your 20s yes. and early 30s that yes. soon leaves you. <laughs> yes, I am painfully aware of that yeah. in, in my uh, late 40s are. now. Yeah, <laughs> painfully aware of that. Not that that was ever part of I couldn't pull those off uh, even back in the day either. But uh, for me, it was like jams and, uh, you know, calf high stocks with my jordan sneakers on but um i mean i i never wore assless but i i did used to go around wearing like leather trousers and pvc trousers uh to clubs and stuff in my 20s and i could pull it off because i was a skinny git and uh, there is no way in hell that you would get me into a pair of those now because everybody including myself would be just embarrassed and not know where to look <laughs> i think the most outrageous pants that i've ever worn were also in the late 80s early 90s but they were do you remember zubaz no they were muscle pants, you know, that people would wear to the gym and stuff oh, like okay. that with right. like wild patterns and colors on them. And there was a, um, for a little while, like everybody wore them and the NFL had a contract with them. So every NFL team had a Zubaz uh, pants line. And so, of course, I had the Chargers once, of course. you know, back in the day with the with the blue and yellow and the lightning bolts and stuff like that. But yeah, that was, those are probably the craziest pants that I ever wore other than my jams shorts back in the day, which um, <laughs> me and Scott Ian were both. But, but 
it, it, going back to sort of what you're saying about the the need for that musical progression and yeah you know not sort of realizing that the outrageous image is overshadowing the music that was kind of that's very true because like i say that was kind of the thing with me was you know yeah i i listened to animal i thought oh yeah that's a decent song that's quite funny uh you know hey look at this band aren't they crazy and outrageous and everything and then just never paid them any more attention because i assumed that's all they were i never looked deeper to even see if there was because i was just like well if a band does this sort of stuff wears these outfits and gets up to these crazy antics on stage then you know yeah i just assumed that they were doing it as compensation if you like for poor yes. songs for poor music and you know i realized that that's especially in retrospect you know looking back there's an incredibly cruel sort of thing to think uh and a very sort of dismissive attitude but it is you know especially in the 80s there were a lot of bands like that there were a lot of bands who compensated for very very average music by having these by do, having this sort of image and doing outrageous things. And so, yeah, I just kind of lumped Wasp in with, with those. Which I think is completely fair. But I think you hit it on the head as far as, like, not looking deeper with that, right? And I think so eventually I think that changed. But to to stick in that particular time frame, so uh, when this album comes out in 1984, the and we should clarify because we haven't. So we're talking about the debut album from 1984. However, we are talking about the version where the initial track was restored. Because when this album came out in 1984, the first track, which was supposed to be Animal, had been taken off because the record company was afraid that major stores were not going to carry the record. And so... Well, I think they'd been told by major stores that they wouldn't carry the record. It wasn't just a fear. It was like stores had said to them, we will not carry this. Well, and shortly after that, Wasps, this song, and, and the band showed up on the Filthy 15, which when we talked about Twisted Sister, right, we talked yeah. about the um, Parents Music Resource Center, we talked about the explicit lyrics tag that they uh, pushed for and the record company agreed to uh, putting on records. Um, they wanted a, a much more elaborate um, system of rating, similar to what movies have than that, but this is kind of where it ended up landing. And so a lot of people forget that Wasp was on that list. Now, just real quick, that list included Prince, it included Sheena Easton, <laughs> uh, it included Vanity, it included Madonna, it included the Mary Jane Girls, uh, it included Cyndi Lauper, but it also included Venom, and it included Black <laughs> Sabbath, and Merciful Fate, and Def Leppard, and Twisted Sister, and Motley Crue, and Judas Priest, and Wasp. Def Leppard! High and Dry, Saturday Jesus, Night, which is kidding. a song about drinking and partying. And so <laughs> um, so it wasn't just, and they actually, you know, said why they included that. So clearly a lot of them were included because of sexual content, whether it be masturbation, right, whether it be right. sex and violence, that kind of stuff. Um, Merciful Fate was included because of the occult references. Venom was included because of the occult references. Um, why was Cindy Lauper on there? Uh, I may have asked you this before, but I don't remember. For... Uh, sex and masturbation for the song She Bop. Really? Oh yep. my goodness. <laughs> um, well, that's quite the reaction that a lot of people had, Anthony, to the whole ordeal and the fact that they were having to go to hearings about this and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And so, um, but Wasp being on there was something that definitely impacted the band in some ways negatively and in some ways positively, obviously, because it also became a thing where having that 
um, you know, sticker on your album drew attention to it, you know, for, for a lot of metal fans and stuff like that. But this happened, the song was already sort of out there by the time that this happened. And so what originally happened was the uh, single of Animal got released in the UK under the Music for Nations label. Yeah. And, and that's where I saw it, like I say, with that, that famous cover with the bloody cod piece. Yeah. And it wasn't, and the only way you could get it in the States was to import it. And I think it was released at one point as a live track, but it wasn't released as a studio track until the 1998 reissue of this album. Um, and when this album was reissued in 1998, it had two additional songs, uh, Show No Mercy and a Rolling Stones cover called Paint It Black. So we're not going to talk about those two today. What we're going to talk about is the original 10-song album, but with Animal reinstated, making it an 11-song debut as it was originally intended to be. So yeah, that's so the album that we're talking about. We're going to treat Animal as track zero, essentially. Right. Um Oh, just quickly before you moved on, by the way, you mentioned, and I'm not going to give it away, but you mentioned a movie that you're going to talk about when you yes. go to a song later. I th- I've got that in my notes as well. I think we're going to talk about the same thing, but I'll leave that until we get to the track. Well, there's two that we could talk about, so uh, it'll be interesting okay, well, to let, see Let's which see if one. it's the same one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so anyways, this album comes out. It comes out without the lead track. And then all these years later, they've reinstated it. So that's why we're going to talk about it, because that's what it was originally intended to be. Um, interestingly as well, this album came out with three different titles. So oh, really? the uh, European vinyl release had Winged Assassins printed on it. Um, the early cassette releases of the album had the album's first track, mm-hmm. I Want to Be Somebody, printed in bold letters on the cover, implying that it was the title. And then the album is officially just entitled Wasp, which is what we all sort of refer to it as nowadays. But the Winged Assassins version and the I Want to Be Somebody version were also um, out there at one point in time. Huh, I did not know that. Spe- speaking of, actually, names and stuff, was that one of the things we should talk about is their name. Because, again, around the time that Animal came out and they were enjoying that sort of uh, flush of fame in the UK, at any rate, uh, it was widely believed widely stated and i don't think ever refuted by the band that it stood for we are sexual perverts which obviously goes along with the the lyrics of animal and stuff but yeah then i later found out you know reading up for this episode that that's not actually official and they've never in fact i believe lawless has basically refused to ever give an official uh meaning of the acronym and so that we Are Sexual Perverts was actually on one of the labels uh, of the vinyl. And so oh, people just made that assumption what, that, right, that, was okay. the, that that was the name of it, which, again, there's so many different stories, and it kind of gets told different ways over the years. But he notoriously has been noncommittal about saying what it officially means. Um, and he has said in a, on a couple of occasions, like, we just wanted to have something controversial. And he thought that by putting periods in the name, it created this sense of, well, what does it mean? What is it? Right, like and, KMFDM, and which yes, people always argue and, and about. And you notice yeah. that Wasp does that twice on this album and on multiple albums. When they when they do song titles, oh, they do okay. periods in the song titles. Like Love Machine is L period, O period, V period, E period. Yeah. Bad is B period, B-A-D. A period, D period. And so um, even when that means nothing, 
there's always that, well, what does it actually mean? Like uh, today I was, you know, looking, <laughs> looking for song meanings and stuff like that to see if there was anything I missed about that stuff, which there probably is, but it like, they definitely fed into that. Everyone's going to have a theory about this, but most definitely when I was a kid, the, we are sexual perverts is absolutely what I thought the name it's, meant. It's what everybody thought. Yeah. It's what everybody thought. And the, so the one um, thing, hang on, the one thing I want to pull him up on uh i have seen repeated claims from lawless again like reading up in prep for this episode repeated claims that they were the first band to put periods in their name and make an acronym of it and that is just bullshit like i understand you know people wanting to make their own mythology and stuff but that is just simply not true rem were formed like three years before this album was even released for heaven's sake. Uh, but there were also other bands around like ABC and ELP who didn't use periods, but they were still initials and acronyms. The only reason they didn't use periods is because those bands were British. And we don't use periods and acronyms over here as a rule, unless there's some reason that it would cause confusion. Same as we don't, uh, we often don't put a period after abbreviated titles like Mr, Mrs, Doctor, that sort of thing. So this is a very small thing, but as a writer and a grammarian... <laughs> I just well, wanted to get that out there. <laughs> here's what I'll say to that, because I actually have seen that come up in interviews, and I have seen people refute that with the REM uh, example to that, is uh, because he's also said, like, you know, we were we were using pentagrams and things like that before other people were. And in most of the interviews that a lot of this stuff goes back to, they're talking a lot of times about the California scene, and they're talking about the heavy rock slash heavy metal scene of the time. And so I think when he gets asked those questions and when those conversations are happening, it's very much where he's believing that they were pioneers in the genre within metal around that stuff, as opposed to maybe in all of music. And that's not to excuse it from him, but I do feel like, because that also came up around conversations of them. um, I think it was in sister. I think it was in sister. With pentagrams and stuff like that, which obviously Motley Crue became very well known for with their early stuff, right? And so well, he and, was kind of... And the, the cover of the Venom album that we did. Right. <laughs> and so he was kind of saying that they were doing things in California in his earlier bands that right. a lot of okay. other bands in that scene started to pick up on and make a larger part of their identity. Because he's also said in some interviews, like, at a, for a time, he was actually... um researching the occult and it was something that was very interesting to him and he said ultimately i found that it wasn't what i was looking for and so i actually moved on from it as content for you know music and stuff like that because it just wasn't what i what i thought it was going to be and he kind of got into a place where he felt like you can tell uh like a macabre or, or uh you know, scary or dark story without having to sing about Satan and without having to sing about, you know, all of this stuff. And so he, he kind of got away from it after a while. And now with Golgotha, like that album, he, there was years and years where he wouldn't even sing animal anymore because he was born again. And so he started censoring some of his old stuff in the tours and in the, in, in some of the newer music and stuff like that. And that's why the reidolized also has some, um, changes to it when when he did the sort of re-envisioning of that album. And so I don't know that that held true on this last tour. I think they did play a lot of the older stuff, but there was definitely a period of time where he, you know, kind of changed his outlook completely oh, in the last decade, I would say. But 
back in the day, it was more of like, this is where my headspace was at when I wrote this album. And then I got away from that. And I was thinking this, and, you know, he talks about when they came off of touring before they did the headless children, that one of the things was he was just completely burnt out. Like from, from everything that they had done before, from being on the road for so long, he just kind of needed to completely reinvent and go in a different direction, which is what the headless children ended up, um, you know, being in that way. But anyways, that, that's sort of down the road of the, the wasp, you know, history and, and, and life cycle and all of that kind of stuff. But well, and it's a common story as well, isn't it? You know, you hear it from so many bands where they they spend so long on the road playing, like you know, just their first two out, al- two or three albums or something, over and over and over again, that they just get tired of it, and they're like, "We've got to do something different because we're just bored out of our minds playing these songs," you know. Uh, and that's when you know, a lot of bands, well, either start to have really, uh, you know, problems within the band and people start leaving and all bands just, some bands just split up and end, or they start really progressing and changing their sound and doing those albums that are a real break and a departure from their previous work. Um, you know, long-time listeners will know I am firmly on the side of, like, I much prefer bands that do that that progress even despite my love for motorhead and stuff like you know but generally i much prefer bands that progress and change with each album uh and have that that moment of oh we've got to do something different or we're just going to go insane and actually take that as an opportunity to kind of not reinvent themselves necessarily but to explore new things that they simply wouldn't have done before uh it's one of the reasons that you know here comes the heresy alert i'm a big fan of the albums load and reload i think they're good albums and i like them because they show that Metallica were willing to, well, in the Black Album itself, in a way, they show that Metallica were willing to do that and go, actually, no, fuck it. Let's explore and do other things. You know, we've taken what we started out doing as far as it can go. So now let's try something else. And a lot of my favorite bands like Paradise Lost, Type of Negative, even My Dying Bride do that. You know, they all have this two, three, four album initial period, which is kind of, you know, much the same, but every album kind of moves closer towards an ideal that you can see they're reaching for. And then they reach it and they're the dog that chased the car, you know, (laughs) they get it and they go, okay, now we've got it and we don't know what else to do because (laughs) this is what we were aiming for all along and now we finally have it. And so those bands, like I say, some bands just split up at that point, but the bands that live on become some of my favorite bands because they do then start exploring and working harder to look for aspects of their music that maybe they hadn't surfaced before or maybe they had just hadn't uh tried playing around with before and sometimes not always but sometimes that can result in some of their best work because they finally feel free like they did at the start of their careers to do pretty much whatever the hell they want because the alternative is just not doing anything at all so you know, I sort of commend, I didn't know about that part of Wasp's development, but I commend Lawless for doing that and for having the guts to not just become uh, a parody of himself uh, in terms, in musical terms at least, uh, and instead, yeah, choosing to sort of progress and explore and try to move on. I, I say I respect that. 
Well, and they just like as a band, and this was this is an old stat, but they had sold over twelve million albums oh, um, nice. over their career, which I think is is on par with a couple of members of the Big Four, and that was years ago. And so they're probably well over that now because they've continued to put out music. But I think it was um, as of the early two thousands they they had sold like twelve million albums or something like that. But so they, you know, overall have been a very successful band, and. Clearly, Blackie is he is the vision. He is the guy. He is the one who has led all of this. There's been so many lineup changes in Wasp over the years. But um, going back to the interview thing, like I do really think if you watch some of those interviews, you'll hear him just talk about his approach to the music and the things that he was trying to do. He talks a lot about like the headspace he's in for a certain album and and stuff like that. And a lot of times he just um, that he came across as like more open in a lot of those interviews than I feel like a lot of people I saw interviewed over the years from mm-hmm. bands that I like just are in those yeah. interviews. So many of those interviews are kind of the canned, um, you know, they're doing the press junket. They have a lot of sort of standard answers to different questions and stuff like that. And he, in a lot of the stuff that I've watched, just, just seemed to like genuinely answer the question and kind of dive into it about like, this is where I was at and this is where we were feeling after this tour. And this is what I was trying to do, or this is what you're going to hear on the next album. And every time he's talking about like what they're working on next, as you do, they're like, Oh, you're going to hear some things on this one that you haven't heard before. You know, you're going to hear I'm playing these many different instruments on this album. And, you know, I can't wait for people to hear it. And some of the stuff is going to be layered in. So you're not even going to really realize it and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, it was cool to go back and uh, look at all of that stuff. I found the the interview. It was from the music box interview when he was talking about the whole occult thing. And they were asking about a song called Widowmaker, and he went on to just kind of talk about one of the problems that he sees in heavy rock at the time. He said, I don't know if it's a real problem or not, but I think it's a subject that's been done to death. It's a lot of the occult influence that's in rock right now. He said, when we had this band Sister, it was very occult-oriented band. Um, that's before anybody had done some of that stuff. You know, We were using a pentagram as a logo. No one had ever really done that before. You know, We're seeing a lot of groups now um, do now. And, and we influenced California a lot as like a lot of the metal bands that ended up coming out of California. We did a lot of things that we got bored with eventually. And we decided to, um, move on from, he said, I was studying the occult at the time. I ended up determining that it's not really what I wanted it to be or what I was looking for. So I moved on to other things and we started this band. He said, one of the things I wanted to do with this song Widowmaker that he's talking about is to show people that you don't have to sit up and sing about devil worship to create a two, true piece of macabre artwork which is what this is. And so he, you know, I don't, I didn't get the sense that he was coming at that conversation from, and you can hear my dog downstairs, downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> so I apologize for that, but I didn't get the sense that he was coming at that from a standpoint of being arrogant. Right, like right. sometimes yeah. you'll hear, you know, people say, well, I invented this thing or I invented this way of playing or this way of picking or this sort of thing. I got the sense that he was basically saying like, I mean, you you see a lot of the stuff around now, and I feel like we were doing that stuff back then, and a lot of people are just sort of, uh, you know, influenced by it. But he never said, he didn't say copying, he just said influenced by, you know. Um, and they went on to say, well, you know, like Motley Crue, and he said, well, I don't want to get into like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get into stuff. But it's clear that he felt like there was some stuff that Motley Crue maybe took from the early stuff that he had done, and uh, were using that to great effect, so... But I feel like that whole scene was that way. I was going to say every band in that scene, I think, just took from 
every other band, didn't they? You know, and be, bands in close knit scenes will do that. That's how it works. Christ, you know, half the time when these bands are starting out in a close knit scene like that, they're swapping members. You know, it, it's it's well, those what sorts of say. scenes are really incestuous. So you're always going to get that kind of crossover. And you know, look at the Seattle scene; they all influenced one another. Uh, that's just how it worked. Um, I'm trying to see what else I pulled from interviews. There was an interview from 1987 in the Washington Post where they had talked about some of the PMRC stuff. They had talked about just like the band's, you know, reputation. Uh, there's a section where they said Blackie's bad behavior on stage, so things such as drinking blood from a human skull, tying scantily clad women to a rack and terrorizing them with a buzzsaw strapped between his legs, cutting holes in the backside of band members' pants in the hopes of getting more girls to come to their shows. They were asking him about all of that, and he said, it's a goof. He said, I tell people, you just relax. How can any grown man walking around with a 12-inch saw blade between his legs be taken that seriously? <laughs> and and that that is kind of when he was interviewed about a lot of that stuff was his attitude about it. Even when Animal was taken off of this album, you know, he talks a lot about him and Chris Holmes were just talking about, like, what's the big deal? Like, what what is – this is all a show. This is all a – And I think that was their whole attitude of, whereas I think if you look at um, like Dee Snyder's reaction, right, and and testifying at the Senate hearing and stuff like that, it was the whole censorship conversation about like, you are trying to censor artists and things like that. Whereas I think a lot of like Wasp's mentality around that stuff was just like, you're taking this way too seriously. Well, I think- you're overthinking it like this is right this is a show this is a performance this is you know this is meant to shock people it's meant to be a catharsis it's meant to be over the top and um from the lyrics to the stage show to all of it um it's meant to be taken you know in stride but didn't snyder's argument come down to that quite a bit as well a lot of what he was saying and you know the whole thing about him turning up not in makeup and you know everybody realizing oh he's just some dude uh you know in sunglasses underneath it all wasn't that part of his argument was just like this is all entertainment and a show yes but also like he was so good in that interview and one of the things that he basically said and i think it was about tipper but i'm not sure they were talking about the song Under the Blade, which was originally written about a fear of having surgery. And he was basically saying, you are going to find in this music what you come looking to find. And so if you come here looking to find um, violence and uh, sexual innuendo and all of these kinds of things, that's exactly what you're going to get out of it. This is a song that was written about this, and yet you found this in it. That means that's what you brought to your listening of that. That's what you brought to that conversation. And so he was really good at sort of showing them that like you're you're coming in looking to interpret this in a certain way and you're finding that in the music and that's you. That's what you're bringing to it. Yeah. And so now granted that's a little bit harder case to make with some of the lyrics and <laughs> uh you know I don't know that I don't know that Blackie could have made the same argument about Animal that D. Snyder was making about Under the Blade, but I love that D. Snyder. Like he really, if you haven't watched that testimony, you really need to go back and watch. Oh that yeah, no, it's great. He, yeah. he, I mean, I would uh, honestly like totally unrelated, but the only other like testimony from like a public figure in a hearing like that that I've seen that I thought was just like absolutely knocked it out of the park the way that D Snyder did in those in those hearings was like when Mr. Rogers went and testified to Congress about uh keeping money 
in public television oh, yeah. and funding yeah, yeah. the work that he was doing. Like those two interviews always stand out to me as like two of the greatest like people blowing away the people that they were coming to sort of testify in front of was just like chef's kiss. But um, yeah, you know, needless to say, I don't think he could make the same case with Animal, but D. Snyder was absolutely brilliant in that uh, testimony. And so, um, yeah, but to go back to the interview stuff, I mean, Blackie has said time and time again, and was saying this back then. This isn't something like 30 well, years this isn't later. This new. He was saying it yeah, at the time. He's like, yeah. oh, that stuff was all a joke or anything. His whole thing was like, yeah. And it, going back to the like image sells concert tickets thing, right? Like the whole, um, because he, in the music sells records thing, like he believed that they had the music to sell the records. That's where he was coming from. Yeah. was like, just that like, and our music is great, you know? And so he felt like it was, they had both of those things. They had the image to sell the tickets. And they had the music to sell the records. And so they were very confident about that. But um, yeah, I'm just looking through to see if there's anything else from the interviews that really jumped out at me. There's so many of them that you should really just go to YouTube and, and uh, you know, do like a Blackie Lawless interview 1985 or whatever, and you'll see so many good things there. Oh, the one thing I we should also mention, even though it was a couple of years later, Anytime people think of Wasp, they think of The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, where uh, Penelope Spheres was interviewing um, Chris Holmes in his swimming pool, where he was absolutely hammered. And this was 87, so this had to be—it had to be around the Live in the Raw time, but before the Headless Children. And I don't know if you remember that, Anthony, but it's— I've never seen it. You haven't seen it? Oh my god! Like I'm sure most, a lot of people who, especially if they like Wasp, are remember seeing it. But there's an interview that she does where he is floating on, um, like a pool chair in his pool, in his full like concert leather pants, you know, full like concert <laughs> outfit, absolutely hammered. His mother is sitting by the pool, and just kind of watching as he's being interviewed and having this conversation, and um. He's being asked questions off camera and he's just sitting in the pool and he's got a bottle of, I think it's Smirnoff that he's drinking out of in the pool and he's completely hammered. And it's one of the most uncomfortable things to watch because it is exactly what you would expect it to be of like that, just that whole eighties scene and what it did to people. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just, um, you know, talking about the fact that she says, do you think you, you know, you're, you have a drinking problem. And he says, yeah, I'm a full blown alcoholic. And she says, do you think that the rock and roll lifestyle turns you into an alcoholic? He said, yes, it does. Um, he said, if you tour one year, it'll take four years off your life. And she said, you know, are, is one of the reasons that you choose trying to get him to talk about like why he drinks. And he, she was saying, you know, is one of the reasons that you, you drink, do you feel like you should be a bigger star than you are? And he said, no, actually, I wish I was a smaller star said, I don't like being the person that I am. And uh, she starts to get into like, do you drink because you're, you know, you're dealing with pain and he starts to get into it, but a, he's completely hammered and B, like he just kind of stops himself. Um, And it's just one of the most, I mean, it's like two minutes long. You could find clips of it online and it's one of the most uncomfortable things that you'll ever see. But just like, I mean, here's this guy who had to be, I'm going to guess maybe in his, his, late twenties at the time and just absolute, you know, full blown alcoholic at that point in time. 
Um, for what it's worth, he says that he's been sober since 1996. Um, he actually just battled cancer uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, like at the time, so th- there, that's something that stands out from Wasp's history is just the interview that was done with him during that movie. But yeah, I mean, so all of those things, right, from the stage show to the PMRC to the Filthy 15 to all of that stuff, like that picture of Wasp from basically their inception until the Headless Children album comes out is that 80s classic picture of just like excess over the top um just complete debauchery sex drugs rock and roll like that whole it is of such an era of time that they are absolutely like a poster band for that particular time and everything that they were doing was like especially against some of their contemporaries like even like motley Crue, like what wasp was doing is just so much more extreme you know, of all of that stuff. And so, um, yeah, they had quite the image back then, um, as evidenced by the first album. And actually, if you look at the cover of the album, that that sort of rack is in the background. Of the right, but cover. with a skeleton rather than yeah, a Yeah, exactly. A, a and that's woman. the same thing on stage. It's the same thing <laughs> that you right? see okay. in, the, uh, in the Live and the Raw uh, cover that I mentioned earlier. Like, that was, that was part of their image. That rack was part of their image um, back then. So, yeah, but there's so many great interviews, a lot of them on video that you can go back and watch of the band and Blackie over the years getting interviewed about that stuff. Not as much footage of their early shows as I thought there would be, because there's some incredible archive footage. Yeah, but there just wasn't that much footage of shows back then, was there? You know, in in the early 80s, it really wasn't the norm like it is now to just video practically every single performance. Yeah, it's just, um, so a lot of like the completely over the top stuff, unless I'm sure listeners may know more about that than I do as far as like, if they're, if you're a bigger fan of the band, but I couldn't find a lot of the old footage that really kind of showed just how over the top some of that early stuff was. Um, but it definitely was the image when they launched this album in 1984. That's for darn sure. Yeah. Well, so yeah, let's, let's start talking about the album. Then let's start talking about the tracks. I mean, it's, yeah, as you said, 1984, uh, 10 songs, 38 minutes, you know, we're going to be talking about it as if it was 11 songs, 41 minutes, either way, not a long album, uh, you know, but there are no ultra short or ultra long tracks on it. That's the other thing, talking about the songwriting, you know, sort of the discipline, if you like, of um, track length, like every single track on this album, if I recall correctly, I'm just looking it up now, yeah, every single track apart from one is basically between three and four minutes. And yep. most of them are between three minutes thirty and four minutes. Like that's the that's how disciplined they are in length. And the one the only exception is track ten, Tormentor, or track nine, sorry, uh Tormentor, which is four minutes and ten. So it's not like yeah. that's some epic length track that's an exception, but you know. I think you I'm glad you said discipline, because I think the other thing that um, we didn't mention is that Blackie Lawless is known to be a perfectionist in the studio. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why a lot of their stuff takes not so much in the early days as far as the, the time that it took to come out. But I think a lot of that also has to do with record companies, but most certainly in later years, just the amount of time that he spends on records and stuff like that. Um, so for the, the personnel for this album, Blackie Lawless, obviously lead vocals, bass. Um, he also co-produced this album, Chris Holmes on lead and rhythm guitars, Randy Piper on lead and rhythm guitars, 
Tony Richards on drums, Randy Piper and Tony Richards both sing backup vocals as well. And you can see that in some of the early live performances that they do. And actually, pretty melodic background vocals, even for the live performances, which I thought was really kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's your personnel for this album. It was a... Uh, I love the bass era of Blackie Lawless. In fact, his him he's one of the reasons I kind of fell in love with bass just overall is uh, the bass that he played, the way that he played bass, all that kind of stuff. And then he switched to guitar and now he, he plays um, guitar and for many years played guitar and wasp as well. But mm. here he's on bass. Um, and he was a good bassist as well. Yes, absolutely. And you can hear that like, but to go back to the, to the discipline thing, one of the things that I really like about this band is that, whether it's a bass line, whether it's the main riffs, whether it's a guitar solo. So many other bands of the day, and we've talked about this ad nauseum for all of the 80s, you know, bands that we've talked about. They, like, you get to the guitar solo and it's 35 seconds long, right? You, you have, which, you know, I love a lot of that stuff and, and just the noodling as, you know, you've called it before. There is a minimum of that in this band. Like, I feel like overall, the music itself, it all, like, what everyone is doing serves the song and doesn't, it, it's not to excess. You it talked about the song It doesn't outstay lengths. its welcome. It doesn't outstay its welcome. Like, there's even, um, when we get to I Want to Be Somebody, like, there, like, even, like, the shouty sort of anthemic um, pieces of it, like, in so many songs, that goes on for 25 seconds, right? Or or there's this crazy buildup to it or something like that. And and like I feel like there's so many times in this album where they they do the thing and then they get out. <laughs> like they don't, they're not lingering, they're not like repeating it 15,000 times. They're not like, and that's not to say the choruses aren't repeated and stuff, but like I just feel like there's an efficiency to what they do so that these songs 40 years later they still maintain what you loved about them back then. Well, they still have an energy. You talked about the energy before, and yeah, they do still have that. Yeah, 100%. And like the the album is, it's lean, you know, and... Uh, Could be leaner. (laughs) mm, I think we're going to argue about that, but I'm interested to see where you think that could possibly be. But yeah, I mean, I'll gush about the individual songs, but I'll just like general impressions of this album as I go back and listen to it is that this is definitely a deeper listening of this album than I had done in a long time. And like I said, because I came in, you know, through Live in the Raw, I would say the, the previous album to that one that I would go back and listen to the most is probably The Last Command, which is the one after this. And so I hadn't like listened to this album tons and tons and tons of times and just like over the past few weeks just spending a lot of time with it it really really cemented for me that it's an incredible debut album first of all that i absolutely think that it that it stands the test of time and that the energy of it is amazing and and also that i think that blackie doesn't get the credit that he deserves of being a great songwriter in terms of just writing music that is tight and resonates and, and has that energy. Like it, this is a great example of a band that like 
all of these parts working together makes something special. It, and, you know, while there may not be one element that jumps out as like, oh, that's an incredible guitar solo or that's a thing. It's like what it what it when it all comes together, it really is uh, something special. And I think there's a lot of examples of that on this album. It is a heck of a debut, I'll say that. But then, as we mentioned earlier, you know, actually several of the people involved, not least Blackie Lawless, were kind of veterans by this point and had been around. So you'd kind of hope that it would be good. But still, you know, for the first for the debut of this band as a unit, yeah, it is, I've certainly heard worse and more sort of uh, uh, shambolic. <laughs> well, yeah. Ven- Venom being a good example well, of <laughs> debut albums. <laughs> and I think you could say all of those things without animal even being on this album oh, for which sure, is yeah. kind yeah. of crazy yeah to think about that and then to add animal to that well let's let's okay, so let's get into it and let's start with track we're going to call it track zero just for the sake of everybody's sanity when counting the tracks and that is animal parentheses fuck like a beast just in case you weren't sure Just in case you weren't sure why the PMRC was offended by it or why uh, it might not have made it on the first cut of this album. Um, so this is your introduction to Wasp, right? Um, right off the bat, I feel like you are immediately in the headspace of Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. You could certainly say Motley Crue because, again, this came out in 84, so Motley Crue was already out there. Um, Kiss, you know. For sure. All of those things, um, all of those vibes sort of in one. And just the way it comes right out, like right out of the gate and starts, you know, pounding. I think it's just a great, it sets a great tone. Um, And then my favorite thing about this song is where, well, first of all, when, so when they start, when he starts singing, immediately you, you hear that, that, did, dare I say goblin-esque? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite goblin-y, but he definitely has, you know, a little bit of Bon Scott. He's got that gravel. He's got that rasp, but he also has melody. And he also, I think is, I think he's a great singer. And so he starts singing right away. The lyrics are absolute cheese. Um, you know, he's basically talking about a kid sitting in his room looking at naked pictures to to start the song. 
so he starts singing. As he gets into the second part of the first verse, the cowbell really starts coming in. And I think Tony Richards' drums on this album are fantastic. So the cowbell sort of comes in. But when he screams, I fuck like a beast, everything drops out. He screams that. And as soon as he gets to the B in beast, the guitars kick in. And the effect that that has on this song just catapults it in terms of energy. Mm. And I just like, I continually like rewound that part several times just to hear like, but it's on the B syllable that everything kicks back in and it goes, and it just like is so heavy when that hits. I just freaking love it. And then as he's singing the chorus, just the scream in the background, I'm an animal, like all of that just works together so well. But it's that dropout and then right on the syllable of B that I think just is just so perfect. Your dog agrees. Um, yeah, they do that a couple of times on a, on a couple of tracks. The the rhythmic dynamics of uh, some of these songs are really good. Yeah, and I think that speaks, as you say, to Lawless's skill as a songwriter. The The main appeal... I mean, it's difficult to say anything about this song that hasn't already been said in terms of, you know, content. And it was obviously written to shock and sort of make an impression. And, and it did that. It absolutely achieved <laughs> that aim. It is incredibly 80s. I mean, that's one of the first things I noted was that it is, it feels almost quintessentially 80s musically, uh, you know, of that period with the Motley Crue stuff, as you say, having been out, you know, a year or two beforehand. But that kind of mid 80s, uh, you know, glam rock sound. It just, it really just sounds like that. Um, but there's some good stuff in it. You know, the the Lawless's bass is good. Does some interesting things, like melodic things. Uh, the drumming, as you say, is very good throughout the album, and especially on this opening track. But the main appeal, really, I think, and I, for me, that's the case for most of this album, is his voice. Uh, it's extremely distinctive. Um, you know, really does, doesn't quite sound like anybody else. And it is that sort of screech <laughs> that sounds... It sounds like he's about to blow out his throat. Yes. Like, it you sounds like he's like, on the edge yeah, all the time, yeah, but like, he maintains that all the time. Yeah, I'm listening to it going like, how can you sing like that and not... But I have the same thing with people like Bon Scott, yeah, and uh, Brian Johnson. I'm like, how can you sing like that for an hour? And not, you know, just completely rip your throat out. It's incredible. Um, and it's powerful as well. That's the other thing. He's like, it's not just, yeah, the kind of, uh, you know, high-pitched goblet screeching, whatever. It's powerful. And as you say, yes. he's a really good singer, which the choruses and the cho this chorus here really showcases. Like, he can belt that tone out in me with melody, but in that screeching, rough sound which is kind of amazing as i say that he can do that uh for a long period of time because i assume i mean obviously when you're in the studio that's different but i assume in the early days at least live he would sound similar live and that is just kind of incredible to be able to do that and maintain melody and really belt it out and be powerful at the same time is a hell of a combination well and you know he makes me think him and like d snyder 
to me are like two sides of a coin whereas d snyder is kind of has a lower register yeah but it's the same thing of like the power like d snyder is is an instrument into and of himself in that band like he, he elevates the energy and the power of their songs through his voice and i think that blackie is the same way he obviously is is singing higher but that right on the edge of like blowing his you know vocal cords out like you said and being able to maintain that and being able to control that um yeah you know when you when we talk about some of the other songs i mean just the way that he delivers some of the lyrics the cadence that he has sometimes the way he emphasizes certain points the way he like brings his scream up a level in certain points like so so good and the way he screams the title line of this song and then the way the music comes in is like that's an example of like the songwriting piece where I'm like I, yeah. I I think that that gets overlooked of like just the timing of that stuff changes the dynamic of the song and so yeah I think it's just like it, if you wanted to see what 1984 Wasp was like this song is like hello this is <laughs> what we are <laughs> like it just well, immediately and the dynamic stuff it's similar to remember when we talked about ACDC. And, you know, it's so simple. There's so yes. little there that you don't need to do much to just give it a little bit of a twist and make it a little bit more interesting. And that's kind of the same here. You know, this is very simplistic music, even by the standards of the time, really, even by 1984 standards in metal. You know, this is not complex, complicated uh, riffing or anything. It is simple stuff. But as a result, it doesn't take much. It only takes a little bit of shifting and twisting the dynamics, as you say, like when he, you know, everything drops out and then the guitars and everything come back when he hits the word beast uh, into the chorus. Little things like that can really elevate a simple song. Uh, and yes, as you say, that's just down to his skill as a songwriter. Well, and again, like going back to all the interviews that you watch of him, like by he's very intentional about that stuff, right? When he's talking sure, about sure. with some of the stuff they're doing on the last command, we're like, yes, we're using synth synthesizers, but you won't even really hear them the first time you listen to the song because like, there's almost like this dedication to simplicity that like this dedication to accessibility that rewards later listens, but also opens the door on first listen. And that, as I, it seems to me like that's a balance that he was always trying to keep. Yeah. Right. It's like, why is this? Why do I keep coming back? It's so simple, you know, but at the same time, it's not as simple as you originally think it to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I might argue that this album, and given that it is a debut, it's understandable, but I might argue that this particular album maybe doesn't succeed in that as much as it could and maybe as much as later albums do because i feel like this is an album that most of the songs do immediately grab you and then you do kind of get a bit tired of them after the you know after repeated listening because there isn't a lot more to them um but like i say for a debut you know that's entirely understandable and yeah if he then went on to rectify that with later releases as you say that it kind of speaks to his self-awareness and intentionality as they say yep all right, let's move on to track one, which was the first track of the, you know, proper album as it was released in 1984 because of the emission of Animal, and that is I Wanna Be Somebody. You say you don't wanna run and hide, a place that no one knows, and everyone you meet, you're gonna 
I mean, this song comes at you like a freight train. It's this might actually be a better opening song than Animal. And the fact that bold claim, dude, (laughs) because of the way, like just with the drums right off the bat and then the way he starts singing, um, you know, you got that machine gun riff. You, you, it just like hits you like a freight train and it's got a great groove. It's got a ton of energy. There's a very raw vibe to the guitar sound. And there's a lot of like, just like hitting the chord and letting it ring out even while the second guitar is coming in and sort of doing something different and stuff like that. And so as tight as the songs are, there's also this like element of rawness to them because they're not, they're not like playing it too tightly. You know what? I don't even know how to explain it. I just know that like there, there is like this, the way that the guitars work on the song, just like there's a lot of um, openness to it. And I just, I, I just like the way that they, the guitars play off of sort of one another. Um, nothing that they're doing is too crazy. And I would say that of the solos on almost every song in this album as well. Like they're not overly long. They're not overly like shreddy. There's a little bit of shredding. There's a little bit of, you know, noodling as you would say, but nothing like crazy. Um, there's also this thing like before the chorus here where you know, they're playing the chord and then in the background, almost muted is like the second guitar, um, you know, playing like this descending series of chords, mm-hmm. but it's not at the same level in the mix as the, as the lead guitar. You know what I mean? Just like stuff like that, where it's just like this almost like little effect. Um, Blackie singing is great on this one as well. And then it explodes into the chorus. I want to be somebody you know, be somebody too. I want to be somebody, be somebody soon. This is one of those songs that reminds me again of like the best of Twisted Sister stuff, which was very like, you're going to, you're going to show them, you're going to show the world, you're going to, um, you know, you can be anything that you want to be sort of thing. It's that empowerment sort of thing. And I think they really nail the energy of that because when you're singing a song like that, it has to have energy because you're trying to lift people up. And I think that this song does a great job of that. So uh, that's I'm going to come back to that because that's really interesting. So this is the this is the other track, as I say, that it turns out that I did know of theirs without knowing it was theirs. Um, but I have heard this track, you know, several many times over the years enough that the chorus stuck with me for years and years and years. And as I say, if you'd said to me, "How does the chorus? Do I want to be somebody?" Go, I could have sung you the chorus. Yeah. Um, I mean, I couldn't have sung you anything else, but you know, the fact that I probably haven't actively listened to it for 20 years and I could still sing you the chorus speaks well of how catchy it is. Um, listening to it in this context, it is so obvious that it's lawless singing. I'm amazed that, (laughs) that I didn't realize it was wasp, but there you go. Um, it is incredibly 80s again, uh, very, very, you know, both in rhythm and sort of song style and sound and everything. There's another lovely rhythmic dynamic bit where uh, in the pre-chorus bit, all the instruments drop out and he shouts to cry out before they yes, before the chorus dude. drops. Again, same thing, It just a little tiny twist that makes the chorus feel heavier and weightier and more like an event. Um, really catchy chorus. It is... <laughs> the bridge bit later on where it's just the drums and him singing it slows down 
but it's not half time. It literally just drops the tempo by about like 10 BPM and then speeds back up when the other instruments come back in. It is so strange. You can literally hear the drums slowing down during the first few beats of that bridge. And I don't know if that's because he had trouble singing it at the highest speed or if they just thought it sounded better. It's really strange. Um, But talking about the meaning of this song, I read an interview with him where he said that this song actually is satirizing that attitude and that it was actually written in response to people who clearly just want to be on TV and they will do anything for, you know, to sort of get on TV and become have their 15 minutes of fame. So it's actually kind of taking the piss. Which I think is awesome. Uh, if that is in fact, and you could read the lyrics that way, because like the lyrics are, you say you don't yep. want to run and hide a face that no one knows, and everyone you meet, you're going to show. That's the thing. It's, you, it's the lyrics are ambiguous for sure. Right. He's, yeah. He. So in that way, he could certainly be saying to people, "You think you're going to be this superstar? You think that you're the one that's going to?" Because yeah. the next line is, "You're nobody's slave. Nobody's chains are holding you. You hold your fist up high and rule the zoo." You know, like he just. It's either a statement or it is a satire of someone who is making that statement themselves, right? Um, But I think the way that it plays out live, most certainly, because they definitely draw out that point where they're, you know, um, where it's just the drums and he's just singing the chorus line there. In I think it's on live in the raw. I'd have to go back and look at it, but definitely in videos of their shows and stuff like that. That is the part where everybody's sort of pumping their fist in the air and singing back to it. So I think the vibe that the uh, audience is getting from that is definitely one of empowerment as <laughs> yeah. opposed to one of satire. But um, yeah, so that's really interesting that he said that. But I like I put that up with Twisted Sisters, like I am, I'm me. Like I just sure, feel sure. like that the energy of that song is just absolutely freaking awesome. And you mentioned the dropout again and the way that he, you know, sort of screams to cry out. He does that so good. Like there's so many songs where he his vocal delivery is just punctuating something in a way. There's another song on this album where I think it's it's just so perfect the way that he does that. But this is another one where like good solo, but nothing too crazy. Um, and when they do do that sort of anthemic chorus part where you can imagine the crowd sort of, you know, yelling back to them, it's one time. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's not the 15 times yeah. over and over <laughs> that you would, like a lot of bands will literally put on the album how they would play it out live. This one is just like, nah, that's just a bookmark. When we're live, we're going to do that probably multiple times. Yeah. And I'm sure anybody who's seen them in concert could tell us, you know, how many times they go for, but. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciated that, that it's just like they do it once and then everything else kicks back in and they're like, boom, on to the next. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, these are definitely these first two tracks are definitely the best two tracks on the album. I think, you know, this is again, this is from the era older listeners will remember when you front loaded your albums, you know, and the the best tracks you had were always what you put and certainly singles were what you put at the front of the album. And I think they did that here. That's not to say definitely that, two of the best. Well, that's not to say that there aren't good tracks elsewhere on the album, but there I might think be one more that I like better, but yes, I, I think definitely two of the best. It's a, it's an incredible one, two punch. And I would say an incredible one, two, three punch on this album. Right. Well, okay. So let's talk about track two, which is love machine or L O V E machine.
What I really like about this song is it is a different vibe than the first two. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you get to this one. This is a very sort of drum and bass driven, especially during the verse. I think you get to hear Blackie sing in a way that you haven't really yep. heard him sing on the first two songs. Um, I think it's still very powerful, even though this this song is sort of like a you know a, a lower sort of tempo verse, and then the call and response sort of chorus that happens. So it's it sort of reverses the energy. I think of some of the other songs. Um, the bassline's awesome in this one. I love the L O, and then the drums come in dun dun V E dun dun. Just the way they do the chorus is awesome. Yeah. I think all three of these these songs you can totally picture in your head the live performance of. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about before with debut albums. Like we know that so many of these bands' debut albums are the songs that they've played in front of people in yeah. small venues for sometimes a decade before they get that first album release and that and that's one of the things i love about debut albums is a lot of those are songs that were road tested in front of fans and so this a song absolutely has that and and it's pretty much a staple of their um you know of their live show because of it's so anthemic but i feel like it's a little bit more melodic than the first two songs blackie singing is great on this one i love that that call and response sort of uh chorus that they have here um and again like just in terms of the rhythm when they're playing the chords it's like they play it and then they kind of slide down to the next one so it's like and i'm not articulating it well on any of these songs but there is like this continuous momentum of what they're doing as opposed to a lot of times when people are playing it more technically and it's like uh it's a definitive ending of one note or chord before the next one sort of starts. This one, they kind of it feels let like things... it feels like bar metal. It feels like they're playing yes, it on, in a bar. Like yeah. they, it, there's just like they just kind of let it bleed into the next thing and stuff like that, and it does give it more of a live sound. I feel like, um, and they do that. I feel like that's almost a staple of theirs. The way that they, um, the way that they play their rhythms like that. But yeah, I, I think this one. You know, again, very anthemic, very melodic, uh, very catchy. One, two, three, three for three so far on this album. It's definitely more interesting musically, a little bit more complex musically than the than the tracks preceding it. Yeah, um, and yeah, that that rhythm in the chorus with the the drums is just nice and sort of unusual. Uh, definitely stands in contrast to the other tracks, um, and the it's. An unusual vocal melody in the verse as well, um, which is surprising for a song that is so clearly built around its chorus. You know, right. like the, the chorus is really all that you're expected to remember in this song. I think that's quite clear. But yeah, so you'd expect the verse in cases like that to be really kind of just perfunctory. And it is in some respects, but yeah, the vocal melody is not, uh, which I thought was an interesting choice just to make that something a bit more... Mind you, the, the vocal melody of the chorus actually is really simple, so I suppose it, it at least gives it some variety because the, there practically is no melody in the chorus. That's all about the, the rhythm and the, the delivery rather than, yeah, you know, melodic singing. But yeah, it's a, it's a good track. I, maybe I don't think of it quite as highly as you do, but it is a good track. It's, it's perfectly fine. And again, the use of periods in the title of the yes, song. Yes, yes. Although, I, I mean, you know, 
it's as he said uh it creates interest as much as anything but i do right also, they're just spelling out the word like they're like right I, not, I do also yeah. think that's partly because of the way the chorus is structured i suspect the chorus came before the title if you know what i mean and the title yeah. they put yeah. those oh, in the title sure. to match the chorus yeah <laughs> all right let's move on to track three the flame this song but to me this is the one song of maybe two maybe there's two but this is like the one song like if i had to cut a song from this album this would be the one song no no this is one of my favorites on the album yep (laughs) Uh, no man there's kind of like a southern rock flair to it this one feels very quiet riot to me um really quiet right and i feel like even blackie is giving kind of a kevin dubrow vibe to his uh vocals to it but uh this was one i actually saw them play if you go back and look at videos from like 1984 you can see them play live and it plays really good live um i like it i just don't i i like if i had to get rid of one song i would it would probably be this one. That's interesting that you mentioned the live because that's literally one of my notes is that I imagine this one is pretty cracking live. Well, this feels like a bar rock song. This feels like the bar rock right. song. Yeah, maybe. You know, like just it, it is that whole like, I don't know how to, to me it feels like a very sort of, uh, you know, rock and rolling song. I guess, yeah, but I know I really like it. I mean, it's got a, it starts really well. It's I guess yeah, it's a traditional rocker, I suppose, which you could call sort of yeah, like a bar song. I mean, the chorus is very much a sing along chorus, I think. Um, but yeah, I I just really like it. I think it moves along. Uh, it's got you know great uh, simple but great riffs and melodies. The solo. This is actually the first song with where the solo actually you know grabbed me. Um, you know, people know I'm not uh, an aficionado of solos, as it were, but this is the first one where I was like, oh, actually, I quite like that solo. That's pretty good. And the end, the ending, the way it builds, and again, you know, I can imagine that's one of the reasons that I thought, I bet this is great live, because that chorus, you can absolutely imagine that sort of soaring over the crowd and everybody singing along with that. And then the ending as well, if they replicate the ending live, I was like, yeah, that would be something pretty great, I think. Also. It was at, at that point, I think because of the ending, uh, I realised that up until this point in the album, there are no fades. <laughs> so thumbs up on that. All of these tracks actually end, at least so far, which is uh, which is nice. Yeah, they don't... I don't think they do a lot of fades on this one. There's, but one. They, There's one on the album. 
Which is a pretty well, good ratio well, compared to what you're normally dealing oh, with. Oh, for sure. Well, especially in the 80s, yeah, you know, yeah. when that shit was rife. Um, and there's one that I wish they did fade, and they don't. Oh, okay. Interesting. We'll get to that. But yeah, like I say, I really like, there's no way I'd cut this. This is one of my favorite tracks on the album. There are way, it, man. There awesome. are way worse tracks than this. <laughs> Well, let's we not have get yet excited. to get to. Let's not let's not make <laughs> statements we can't take back. <laughs> Track four, then B A D bad. Again with the periods in the title. Yeah. Uh, make your mom and daddy sad, man. <laughs> um, this song, uh, again, this feels very Twisted Sister to me. Like, this this feels like it could be an early Twisted Sister song. I love the guitar tone on this one. It's got an ACDC vibe to me as well on this song. Um, the way that he sings the verse... I don't know, man. The only thing I can equate it to is like how Dio sometimes, like he sings like a cross. He doesn't stop or start where you think he's going to. He lets certain things carry over. It's almost the way I was talking about the guitars earlier, how they just sort of let things bleed into one another. Mm -hmm. His vocal delivery on this, um, it doesn't sound like weird. It's just that it doesn't do exactly what you would expect him to do. And then I feel like when you get to the chorus it like starts galloping right it, it has this sort of tempo change where it sort of starts sort of uh galloping um i i like this song i think the solo is um decent on it uh it's not really doing anything special but i also like it he sort of he sings the first verse about the girls he sings the second verse about the boys the chorus to me is the my favorite thing is when they just scream bad you know after he after they spell out the you know the word but um yeah and it's not clear to me what this song is truly trying to say i don't think bad stands for anything um i think it's just sort of uh a lot of what he talked about in interviews is sort of you know being brought up in a religious family right the just the things that you're shamed for the things that are sort of taboo the things that uh, you know your parents consider um evil or bad or awful or forbidden or anything like that and i think a lot of what he's talking about here is getting into that so yeah yeah the unusual rhythm of the vocals that you mentioned in the verse yeah that's i mean it is consistent you're right it's not what you expect him to do but once you realize that's what he's doing he then does he do establishes it. it right he yeah. does do it then do it on every other line um but you're right, yeah. The first time you listen, you're like, oh, wasn't expecting that. Um, the rest of it, though, honestly, to me, it's bland. Um, like, the lyrics are not particularly interesting. 
the song, the musically, it's not that interesting. Like the solo is one of the best parts of, on this song for me. Um, and when I'm the one saying that, then you know it's a pretty dire state of affairs. But I think you can say that because I think like what, again, what this album does is like they don't go crazy with the solos. Like they don't overstay their welcome. No, well, so you can uh, kind uh, of just take or leave them as they come, right? Which I think like for most bands, because they do overstay them, I think a lot of bands like lose you just for that fact alone sure, of sure. like, okay, here we go. It's the big solo break. Yeah, no, here, and, and, that, and that's why I like this solo. Yeah. And as I say, in the, the previous song, I like the solo there as well, but it's the, the fact that I of all people are saying like, yeah, the solo is actually one of the best parts of the song. I think is just kind of, yeah, it's not bad. If you'll pardon the pun, <laughs> it's it's not a terrible song. It's just bland. It's really, uh, you know, just kind of washes over me. And I'm like, there's nothing really interesting to hang on to here for me. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't argue with you <laughs> that that it's an amazing song. But like, I do, I think it does enough to to justify its stay on this. Uh, album and it is in that middle of the album sort of well we're area getting, too yeah you know? yeah i mean i've got yeah i'll make a point later about sort of composition of the album and stuff but um but yeah you're right it's sort of you know what is it track four on side one so well so you're starting to kind of dip a little bit but then we get to track five school days with a z obligatory anti-school yeah <laughs> i feel like you it's almost a requirement right i i forgot about the whole pledge of allegiance thing like was that it is that still really a thing did you have to do oh, that at yeah. the start of school oh yes what Absolutely. like every day or every day every yes. day yep can right can you imagine? i went to catholic school growing up and sure, sure. literally every day was this and prayer right but can you imagine if i told you that kids here in the uk that when I was at school, we had to stand up every morning in class and pledge loyalty to the Queen. You'd call us mad. Well, doesn't that then shed light on why there's such a rebellion to that? You know what I mean? Like, because you kind of roll your eyes, right? You get to the sign, oh, oh, here we go. This is the part where they talk about how they hate school, right? But, yeah. But with good reason. <laughs> they, uh, yes, dude, that's what I'm saying. Is like, you, you almost... 
start to appreciate like why why do so many like it's not because that for a lot of kids growing up, and again knowing where blackie is coming from right knowing that that he was in a very structured you know um school environment to begin with as well you can see why like it it is and oh, for you know, sure i'm, I'm, I'm not I'm doing my track. time my age is my crime uh yeah no. I, i'm attending hell high you know <laughs> but just like uh, uh but I like, and actually, it sort of belies the deeper elements of this song that I think could be overlooked because of the fact that when you look at the title, you're like, oh, here we go, a song about not liking school. You can kind of dismiss it. But then there's a part of the song where he says, I pledge no allegiance and I bet. And this is again where he's doing a delivery that is different than how you would expect him to deliver it. And and so I just love the the way that he delivers some of those. Look, it's almost Dio esque to me in some ways, um, even though they sound nothing like one another. He says they're going to drive me crazy. Yet nobody here is understanding me, and that is like every kid's. You know, whether whether you're being bullied in school, whether you're not getting it, whether you're you know struggling grade wise, whether there's stuff going on at home, like just that feeling of like. I'm here and these people are supposed to be here to help me and yet no one's listening to me and nobody understands me. I thought I just think that the song does a great job of capturing that when it gets a little bit more serious, you know? Yeah. Um I, I agree. I mean, like I say, I wasn't I wasn't knocking the song necessarily. It was more just yeah, I'd forgotten about the whole pledge of allegiance thing. Um but I agree. This is a good tr- good song. It's got a bit of a swing to it which is, uh, you know, unusual, something we haven't heard before on any of these tracks, which is nice. And yeah, I, I think these are some of the best lyrics on the album because they're totally relatable. You know, I bet that a lot of us, if not maybe most people, felt this way about school. And there's some really good lines in here. There's the ones you quoted. There's the, the line, what is it? A blackboard jungle towed the line the rulers made. Now that is some nice wordplay. There's at least two yeah. puns in there in the space yep. of like seven or eight words, you know? Um, yeah. As I say, I like this song. I think it's a good way to end side one as well, you know, with something that is a bit unusual that starts with a spoken word thing. So it, that makes your ears prick up and you go, Oh, what's this? Um, so yeah, back in the days when this would have been delivered on two sides, I think this is a really good way to end side one. And also like, Guitar tone wise, the beginning of the song has a very early Queensryche feel, and I know Phil will back me up on that when he <laughs> when he makes a comment. But it does feel very much like the the sort of warning era era of Queensryche in the beginning of the song. It just like immediately I was like, "Ooh, that opening riff is very Queensryche." Um, but yeah, really like the song overall, and I think, as you said, ends the first side on a good note. Yeah. All right. So let's flip it over. Track six. Hellion.
The way that he screams in this chorus <laughs> is might be my favorite thing on the album. It, it, it literally might be amazing, my favorite. isn't it? Yeah. Just yeah. the way he emphasizes yeah at the end of that is so freaking good. Well, and before then, the sustained notes when he's singing hell. Like to hold that note that long again with that rough, raspy tone of voice, that is hard, man. That is, well, it, and, and it just sounds, it cuts right through your ears. It sounds yes. great. And then like, but when he starts singing it, layering in the other vocals at the same time, but then the, his scream outlasts them all just in the way that that's delivered. You know what I mean? Because when he starts singing Hell, there's, it's either them layering his vocals or it's the background vocals kicking uh, yeah, in. Yeah, I'm not sure which it right is. There. Yeah, yeah. But then when he gets to the second half of the word, he has outlasted the backing vocals yeah. <laughs> and, and delivers the scream at the end of it. And the power just in the scream at the end of it is so awesome. Um, it really, it, like, again, there's stuff on this album that I just feel like for a debut album and with the peers that they had at the time, like, they are doing some very cool stuff on this um yeah th- this song also to me from a drum perspective reminds me of uh red hot from motley crew uh just that just the way that sort of drums are on this song the chorus is great um it it has this sort of brutal and aggressive feeling and and his delivery just drives that home so i feel like coming like starting the second side with this and then there's you know, and then there's a line going into the solo where he's like slain by the bloody axe. I, you know, I I think he's saying I wield. They say I wail in the in the lyrical translation of it. But then it, then the guitar screech comes in right after that, and I think it's a trade off solo between um, Piper and Holmes on this one. So I really like that too. But yeah, this song just this to me is like a classic Wasp song. Just the overall vibe of it, the overall feel of it the sort of just pummeling nature of it to me is very much like in that classic wasp vein. It's, it's one of the heaviest tracks I think on the album, isn't it? And it's, uh, I think, I agree. I think it's a great start to side two. nice atmospheric build up, And then, yeah, as I say, like a really quite heavy, you know, fast paced track. It's got also a really interesting talking about me you know, Lawless's songwriting and stuff, a really interesting trick that they play with the uh, structure and rhythm in the verse. Like, it is a straight... I counted this. I played this many, many times back, checking on this. So it is a straight eight-line verse divided into two sets of four, just as you'd expect, just like, you know, thousands and thousands, if not millions of other songs do. But the drummer adds a big fill, which is the sort of thing that you... Normally you put a big fill at the end of the four, End of the fourth line, boom, 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 boom. That's when you put your fill, right? But instead, he puts this at the end of the second line. Like, after Lawless sings Hellbound in the first verse, and after he sings All Night in the second verse, that's when the fill comes in. And that has the effect of making it feel like the lines have shifted almost. Even though they, they haven't at all, he still ends on the four, just as you'd expect him to. But it only comes two and a half lines or whatever after the fill, which really kind of just catches you out. It's, it's a really neat way, I think, of making the whole song, again, talk, like we said with ACDC, it makes the song feel more complex 
than yes. it is. It feels more well, sort of, you know, crafted and more complicated than it really is. And it keeps you on your toes. I, I really like it. It caught me out. First time it happened, I was like, wait a second, is this a three-line verse? What's going on? And then, like I say, played it back. I was like, oh, shit, no. They've just moved the fill. <laughs> yes, but because he's also delivering the lines in, like, sets of three. Where he's yes maybe where he's like the end of the second line is going right into the third line because he's finishing a sentence and so he's like using there's not like a definitive end to it, it it's another one of those things where no like, well, the the last the end of the third line is also the start of the fourth line yeah yes dude like that stuff is just so clever I really really like that, that's just a great example. It's like you said of like you're adding a level of complexity, but what you're doing is not super complex. But to think ahead and and compose the song in that way, and to compose it lyrically that way, that you can do that is is complex. But it, but the way it plays out in the song is it's like a it's almost like a hidden complexity. Yeah, it's mature songwriting is what it yes. is. Here here's something that I never thought I would words that I never thought I would speak in my entire life. It reminds me of Winger. <laughs> oh, here we go. Everybody timestamp that one. Cuz you'll remember when we did that album, one of the things I said I did like about it was that Kit Winger is clearly a very very mature and sophisticated songwriter and there were elements of those songs that were really quite complex and advanced and thoughtful thoughtful and considered um and i think that's what we can say here about this track is that yeah it's not super complex it's not crazy complicated to play or anything but it is thoughtful and i i really appreciate that and i think that thoughtfulness is what uh, is the feeling that resonated with me when i watched him get interviewed over the years Right, and just yeah. watched all these different claps, uh, clips over time is just this idea of like the thought that went into it or the thought that was going into the next thing that he was doing and he was trying to explain it to the interviewer of like the new things that he was trying and stuff like that. It's just like a very, he just had a very thoughtful approach to that stuff, even though when you look at the wrapper that it's put in, you know, when you look at the image that surrounds it, it says everything but that. Right, yeah. And you know what I well, mean? Again, it's like the center to of the, the Tootsie Roll pop. That, it's like there's something else going on here. Right, but it speaks again to this idea of the image overshadowing the music. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, but yeah, good track. Let's say I, I like it and a, a cracking track to open side two. Uh, but now let us move on to track seven, Sleeping in the Fire.
I mean, a three minute and 55 second almost ballad, but not really. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, it's, um, the, it's the bastard ballad. It is, but it's like not as ballady that it definitely doesn't fit the the typical stereotype of ballads that you're used to on on these 80s albums where no, there is just one true. like yeah. really sappy um you know just super depressy you know type of thing this one is definitely moody and uh very sort of dark i think there's a great solo in this one which i believe is randy piper on this solo um but yeah just like melodic dark um is it doing anything special special as a ballady type song no but i also feel like it packs more of a punch than a lot of a lot of you know ballady type songs and uh, i like it i think it's got a great chorus too oh i see i totally disagree this is the, this is absolutely the track i would ditch from this album like the one thing it's got going for it is that it shows lawless it really shows that lawless can sing like you know, this is in terms of just pure melody. This is probably his best performance. Um, but the song—it's literally—it's one verse and then just the chorus over and over and over again. Like my God, <laughs> how dull! Um, yeah, everything leading up to this track has, whether I've liked it, you know, more or less or whatever, has not been boring and has not been sort of you know dull and the expected thing. And this is. This is exactly that. This is just dull. Uh, it's also, this is the only track on the album that fades out. I rest my case. <laughs> well, I think we just found out why you really don't like it. I mean, we just, <laughs> like, that was it. Like, you, you just couldn't get over that. Um, I definitely don't dislike it to the level that you do. Uh, it definitely is a different change of pace from everything else that we've heard on the album so far. You could argue whether or not you need that. Um, I think if you did remove it from this album, then you're pretty much straight out from start to finish um, with a certain type of energy. And so you could make the case that like, if you, if you wanted that one type of energy to go straight through this album, you would have to get rid of the song to do that. Um, But yeah, I think this is one of their more popular songs as far as, I don't know if it makes it into the... People the, fucking uh, love ballads, man. That's why. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. You can't don't tr- take that away from them. You, you can't know? trust people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't take, don't take ballads away from people. All right, track eight, On Your Knees. Okay, now we're back on track, right? Yeah, we're, that's, we're that's literally my first opening note for this song is this is more like it. <laughs> yes. So 
And what I would like to draw a parallel to is like, I felt like one, two, three, if we're counting or, or zero, one, two, if we're counting animal as zero, the zero, one, two of this album and the, you know, eight, nine, 10 of this album are pretty freaking good bookends to an album. Um, and on your knees, I mean, definitely put you right back in that classic wasp sound, that sort of like rolling rhythm, you know, the way Blackie comes in right as the first chord does it again is just like, it feels like a freight train. Um, mm-hmm. just like, I mean, the, the, the lyrics, although the lyric, like the first verse dancing with danger, right until dawn, the sin that you buy and you sell mom and daddy said the life that you've led you'll party your way straight to hell. Like that's the lyrics might be cheesy, but that's a pretty well-written. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, first verse uh, of a song there. But yeah, I mean, just like classic eighties wasp vibe on this song. Yeah. Just straight ahead, three minutes and 48 seconds of like uh, a train barreling down the tracks. Really good drumming on this track as well. The drumming, dude. Is, the drums throughout. Are I mean, just they are so... they are great on the whole album, yes. But on this track in particular, I think they stand out as you know quality. And it's that like that rolling rhythm element to them, right? Where it's just like that pounding sort of vibe to them is just really really good. Um, it just lends this like momentum to the song that feels like it just starts and just rolls right over you. Yeah, I mean this. Uh, one of the things I thought about this track was this feels like it could have been the closer. Um, I mean, lyrically, there's there's not a lot to it, but as you say, what is there is is not you know is fairly well done. It's not badly done. Um, it certainly restates their thesis, <laughs> as it were. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it could be a good closer if they didn't already have one of the no, greatest closing songs of I, all time I, on this I, album. Right. I mean, we'll get to that in time. I'm not suggesting that it should have been the closer, but it feels like a closer. There's something. It could have been musically. There's something about this chorus on this that feels like a closing track. I, I can't really put my finger on exactly why. But yeah, I do like it. And it's certainly, this was a real antidote to my disappointment with track seven. Because uh, yeah, this is yeah. much better. Uh, track nine, however, <laughs> let's talk about that. So track nine is Tormentor. guess from your tone this <laughs> it opens so well it opens so well it sounds like motor you can hear the pulleys uh 
in the beginning. It, 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 honestly, the opening, it sounded like Motorhead to me. And I was like, oh, here we go. Another good, another good rocker. And then the rest of the song just does not live up to it. Like this to me is the dip of the back half of the album. Um, it's not that it's actively bad. It just feels like filler. It's, it's not interesting to me at all. I like this song. Um, I think this is another song that has a very twisted sister vibe. And I think the screaming of the word tormentor in the chorus almost sounds like Dee Snyder to me. Um, like he was doing backup vocals on this song. If you go back and listen to it, it it's not, it's, it's gotta be, um, it's gotta be either Randy Piper or, or um, Richards there, but, um, yeah, I mean, this song feels very kiss to me, very twisted sister to me. The chorus, uh, you know, they have a, a great melody in it. Obviously, it's just him saying the same word over and over again. But um, this was the song that was featured, uh, is related to two movies, not okay. just one. Here we go. So uh, the movie that I remember from is Dungeon Master. Um, oh, which is... Which, right. Yes, no, that is. I looked it up. That is the same movie. So in Europe, that had a different title. In, uh, so what was the title? So over here, and th- this, so there's a whole story around this and why I remember this. Uh, I've mentioned before, and I know you used to do it as well, you know, when we were younger, me and my mates would go down the video rental store on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and they would often have, they'd have the, the cheap B-movies would be really cheap to rent. It was 50p for a night, because you'd rent them overnight, you rent them for 24 hours, and it would be 50p uh, an overnight rental for these movies. And they were, you know, some of the really bad, like, fantasy and sci-fi B-movies, basically, uh, of the 80s. And we would rent two of these movies and, you know, go to my friend's house and watch them, basically, you know, for the evening. That would be two movies on a Saturday night. And we knew they were bad. But that was why we watched them. We knew that they would be cheesy, bad movies. That's why they were cheap. That was part of the fun. One of them, and it was me that picked this out... <laughs> One of them was called Rage War, The Challenges <laughs> of Excalibrate. And I was like, what the fuck? I can't resist a movie with a title like that. So I was the one who picked that out and I said, guys, we've got to watch this. It sounds cheesy, but like with a title like that, surely it's got to be good. I can't remember what the other movie was. And my friend John, who listens to this show, so John, I hope you listen to this episode, he may not recall this, but I have never forgotten because of the embarrassment uh, that I felt when we were watching that movie. And John, it certainly for years afterwards, never forgave me and never, never <laughs> failed to remind me that it was me <laughs> who said we should watch Rage War, The Challenges of Excalibrate, because it was fucking terrible. And it is, I now find, yeah, it's, it's the movie Dungeon Master. Uh, Zap him with your gauntlet became our catchphrase oh for God. some years afterwards That's because amazing. he solves every problem in the movie every by just one. zapping them with his gauntlet every single oh it's so bad <laughs> but yes so, wasper in the movie <laughs> wasper in the movie um the torture rack is in the movie the so you actually get like a you know and this movie came out in america a week after the album did oh wow yeah it was it came out in august of 1984 i believe and um so you talk about B movies. So this movie was put out by uh Empire Pictures and Charles Band Productions. Empire Pictures eventually became Full Moon Productions. Um so Full Moon is a very is a B movie imprint that you know, Puppet Master, right, uh, yeah. Trancers, um, Dollman, stuff like that. All of those are are uh 
you know, full moon ones, but this is a Charles Band movie. And so, and it starred Richard Mall of Night Court fame. So for any of those of you that are familiar with uh, Night Court, it was a courtroom comedy and Bull was the character that was the bailiff in that TV show. And that is Richard Mall. And that's what originally drew me to this movie was recognizing him. Of course, the Dungeon Master, named after Dungeons and Dragons, also uh, a draw back in the day of that. But yes, uh, and in this segment, you can go watch it on YouTube. If you, I think Shout Factory has the the uh, Blu-ray version of the movie now and stuff. But uh, you'll see the clip in full where Tormentor is playing and Blackie is the Dungeon Master, like in disguise, and is going to torture the main character's girlfriend um on stage and so and he oh, defeats so them she's by zapping. on the rack right she's right. on the rack yeah, yeah yeah um she's got like a hood on and he pulls it off and she's the one underneath it and so um that whole thing plays out as tormentor is playing and there's a bunch of extras in the crowd wearing their spiked gauntlets and all that kind of stuff and and good stuff it's a it, it is a slice of 80s right there and also a slice <laughs> of 80s is. b horror movies and you know you mentioned like renting that was my childhood too my friend john and i would uh we had a place where you could rent them for like a buck and also they would let teenagers rent whatever movie they wanted to and so we would go there and rent every horror movie ever made so from like until about 1992 any horror movie that existed before that time we saw it yeah we saw everything we saw every (laughs) bad one every terrible one um yeah that that sounds like us too yeah uh, (laughs) yeah i mean just like And that was our, and for me, in a lot of ways, he was also my, my heavy metal friend. And so for me, that's why those two things are so closely. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, my my friend, John, that's John without an H mine, but you can't tell that obviously. Um, uh, Yeah. He was, he's the guy that I talked about in the Halloween episode. He was the other big Halloween fan along with me uh, at that time. So yeah, absolutely. As you say, those things are inextricably linked all we did was listen to heavy metal and watch horror movies that was the that was our pastime (laughs) (laughs) like literally so so that's why we used to play role-playing games as well but uh, yeah pretty much other than that (laughs) and we worked at a grocery store together and they would cash your check for you when you um got your check every week so we would get our check cashed and then we would walk in the same plaza that the grocery store was in about three doors down was the music store, which still exists today. And we still go to, to this day, same guy still owns it, but we would walk over to the music store and buy every album that came out that week, every week with our check from the grocery store. Yeah. And so that period of time from like seventh grade until the end of high school was just every horror movie and like every eighties rock or metal album that came out during that time. That was what we did. Uh, I should just say for the audience's benefit. So the Dungeon Master Rage War, whatever you call it, the movie, it was a portmanteau movie. It was one of those where they get like five or six different directors to make like, you know, 10 minute uh, pieces and then link them all together um, in a, you know, in an overarching story. And so, yeah, the Wasp one is just one of those stories. I cannot stress enough how bad this movie is <laughs> you may you may be listening to us thinking oh i'll watch that well sure go ahead but be warned it really is even by 80s cheesy b-movie standards it is fucking terrible one of the worst movies that i have ever seen in my life so you have been warned 
I feel like the wasp part is the best part of it. it it's and certainly so, one of the only parts that I remember with right. any clarity, yeah. So if you watch this clip, you will have <laughs> experienced seen, the best part of the movie, yeah. <laughs> well, and really most of the entire like like Anthony said, like the the They're all the solution, same. Yeah. The solution to each problem is the same and so you will have seen a full <laughs> Uh, you know, situation play out, and you'll know, like, oh, do I want more of that, or, or do not. I feel like that's enough? Yeah, <laughs> man, so bad. I'm so glad that it was the same movie we were talking about. That's so funny. The other movie that it was associated <laughs> with, I was hardly Terror know Vision. anybody else who's ever seen that movie. That's the other thing because it's Dude, so those bad. movies. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm not embarrassed because I love those movies, but yeah, like all the Puppet Master movies and stuff like that, dude, just. Yes. <laughs> yep. It's all part of the same experience. It really is. All right. Let's move on then to the final track, track 10 The Torture Never Stops. <laughs> cements this as just an all-time great debut album what a freaking closer dude it's a really good closer isn't it yeah first of all the 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 riff that this song starts with could be the best riff on the album it's very sinister um it's so good and then the song itself is very aggressive it has that sort of rolling sort of galloping you know vibe to it the lyrics are hit and miss but there is some great lyrics in this song and the way that he delivers the chorus i mean damn it man if you thought hellion was good the way that he says never stops and just screams that and he almost like snarls the word stops uh is so freaking good in this song that it elevates the chorus and everything else around it in this it's just got this just absolute nasty vibe almost like a, a like the frustration of of the you know being stuck in this endless loop just you can feel it and it's so damn good yeah well and the lines leading into that chorus as well and you oh my god you die but no one hears or cares and hopes the rope that keeps you tied in knots oh, dude that, those are good lines that and the way he delivers hears or cares, right? He says hears, and then he kind of draws it out, or cares. Yeah. Just the way that he says it is so good. And then hopes the rope. And that part is super melodic. It Like, just the way that that's delivered, and then that keeps you tied in knots. Just 
so freaking good, dude. I, I also and, like how that means that the the chorus rhymes with the last line of the verse, which is just a neat, another, again, you know, sort of thoughtfulness and nice little touch in the songwriting because yep. it kind of draws you in from that pre-chorus line into the chorus. It's got a lot of energy, this track. It's definitely one of the better tracks on the album, um, which, I mean, to me, it kind of feels like it belongs up there with the opening tracks because of the energy that it has but the fact that it is one of the better tracks on the album is as good a reason as any to make it the closer because as we've said before you know you want to you want to end with a strong finish and this is a, a really strong finish but can you imagine if this was say track four instead of bid oh imagine how strong side one would be i mean you would be talking about but, side one as, as if it was gold you know but then i feel like you get into the danger of side one being the side that everybody listens to well true yeah yeah nobody you know, ever then bothers like, turning it over <laughs> right which to these days is less of an issue but certainly back then like this is you talk about a song that makes you want to immediately flip the record over and start the whole ride all over again yeah. this is a freaking song that does that and well and especially with that frantic ending that it's got as well oh my god and doesn't fade <laughs> but it could have because the title of the song is The Torture Never Stops. Oh, so I see. if there was a song where they could, I mean, you could just imagine like him screaming as it sort of fades away, yeah, just yeah. like, like you could totally. Off into the play distance, this. never stopping. 100%, yeah. 100%, yeah, yeah. dude, you could play this out like that. Now, it, it ends in a fantastic way. So it's not like I wish that it ended differently. But if there was a song that you could fade out, the torture never stops. But you could is justify the totally, fading. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I, I tell you what would be even better was if they cut a loop. You know, like they do used to yes. do on some albums. If they cut oh, a loop, that so that it awesome. would just go, and it literally would never stop until you lifted the needle. <laughs> but like the, the thing, about, and this is a perfect song of that. But there are choruses on this album that you want to scream when you're listening to it, not just sing along with, scream along with. This and I think that is such a tribute to Blackie's delivery and the power of his voice and the way that he sings is just like you cannot help but want to like scream alongside of it and like this again just the way he delivers this chorus is so good um, and so visceral and I think that's another thing too is we're talking about an album that came out in 1984 and in 2023. You know, I'm listening to this song and just screaming along with it. And it's like, this is what it's about, man. This is like such a good debut album. So, so good. And I think so many things are established here. Even when Wasp got much more, when Blackie's songwriting got much more like, you know, contemplative and went in a lot of different directions, the rockers that are present on every Wasp album. The roots of all of them are here. And so if you like that sort of classic Wasp vibe that you can still find on every album, no matter how far, you know, he's taken something in a different direction, the roots are all here. Mm. And it's just a really good foundation that they built off of. And I feel like with The Last Command, which is still one that I, like I said, I was the one I would go back and listen to, I think this one is better. Like I like having spent so much time with it now, I think top to bottom this one is better, and I would put it right up there now with the Headless Children, which I think was my favorite 
um, album. I think it, the Live in the Raw is also an, an incredible album. But um, yeah, man, I, I think this is a great closer. And I think it cements this as a great, great, not just debut album, but definitely a great 80s album. And to me, just a, a great album, period. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, I must admit. You know, I, I will say that there, there are more tracks on this that I really quite like uh, than I expected there to be. Because, like I say, because I've never investigated Wasp at all. You know, I heard Animal and that was it. And as far as I'm concerned, that was just, that was the band. Um, so, yeah, having listened to this, obviously, you know, in some detail now over the last few weeks, I am surprised at how much more I like it than I expected to. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not about to sort of put it up there on a pedestal and call it a classic album for me, um, but it is certainly, much like we said about Twisted Sister, you know, much, much better than I expected it to be. Uh, because I, I admit, you know, I did kind of dismiss the band based on their the image and the shock tactics and all that sort of stuff, and I thought, yeah, you know, I know what bands like that are like, uh, and musically they're not for me. Um, but yeah, as I say, I'm happy to admit that on a few tracks anyway on this album, I was wrong. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed them a lot more than I expected to. Yeah, that's awesome to hear, man. It was a blast going back and really spending some time with this album. And I, I think it was also a blast looking at some of the more recent interviews with Blackie and just seeing the way that he's um, really engaging with people and their questions and, and telling stories and all that kind of stuff. It's very, very cool to see. So. Um, yeah, it was, it was a blast to go back and check this one out again. Cool. All right. So that's nearly the end of the episode. Uh, stick with us for a moment and we'll talk about the homework. Uh, but in the meantime, I'll say as always, thanks for listening to everyone. Uh, if you enjoy the show, remember to spread the word, tell your friends, rate us on iTunes and Google Play and uh, Spotify and all the places that we are where you can listen to us. And of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you are already a patron, don't forget to go to the uh, Encore poll and make a nomination if you haven't already. Uh, and if you're not yet a patron, you can join and immediately take part in the poll. You know, uh, some people do that with the listener's choice every year you know they be they join take part in the poll and then a few months later i see them drop off <laughs> the uh patrons list again you know we'd rather you didn't obviously but you can do that if you want um you know it's per- there's no law against it uh but yeah thank you to everyone who does support the show via patreon because especially as we've said before uh, the way things are at the moment times are hard for everyone so we really appreciate everyone even being able to chuck in a buck per episode it uh you know it all helps uh if you want to get in touch with us go to thrashitoutpodcast.com that's got links to email and twitter which still exists just about um i don't know about brian you can also find me on like all the other uh services you know if you just use the same username basically anthony johnson i'm also on mastodon and blue sky and uh, i mean i've been on instagram for ages what else spoutable i'm bloody everywhere at the moment <laughs> honestly ridiculous i'm not making that one up that's a real one <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's the new one, right? Spoutable? Uh, um, I think Blue Sky is newer than Spoutable. Oh, Blue Sky is the newest yeah, one, yeah. You know. Are you on any of um, those? I am not yet. I did join uh, Hive right when I thought oh, yeah, everybody I'm on that as well. leaving Twitter. <laughs> Forgot um, about that one. <laughs> and you're the one person that seems to be posting on there because that's the... It is <laughs> dead now, isn't it? Chat, yeah. <laughs> it's like you're on there. But um, yeah, Twitter at C. Brian Wright. Um, what else am you're I on? You're not a Mastodon? No. Oh, okay. Because I think that 
I'm still waiting to see like if that's the place that people are going to go or not. Yeah, I, I think it's there's a layer there of complexity it, to it that I feel like keeps most people away from it. Agreed. And so yeah, it, I it's very full of techies at the moment for exactly that reason. I think I think it's between yeah. there and Blue Sky. Blue Sky is much more like Twitter, but obviously it's still closed. It's invite only at the moment. So uh, yeah, who knows? Anyway, this isn't a tech podcast, and we are not no. we're not about to turn into ATP, the accidental no. tech podcast. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as I say, the thrashedoutpodcast.com has got the links to contact us, and of course, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash slash groups slash thrash it out. God, it's a long one today. My voice is going. <laughs> I can't. What are words? Uh, so, homework. This is the last regular track the last regular album last regular episode of this volume uh what you've just heard wasp was brian's last choice for volume six and this is going to be my last choice for volume six and then as i said in the next episode we will do the random selection for the encore and that will be the final regular uh episode of this volume so we have talked a little in the past uh and you know fairly recently i think about how it feels like one of the genres that we haven't really covered much, and it feels like, you know, it feels like an admission, is power metal. Okay. Like, we've done a little bit, for sure. We've done a little bit of, of modern, but I mean, we did Halloween, obviously, and then we've done, you know, I'm on a Marth, you could probably call power metal. Um, you know, we've done a little bit of it here and there, but we haven't really covered, other than Halloween, we haven't really covered sort of classic Euro power metal uh and at this point there is at least one listener i can think of who was probably sitting there vibrating going oh god oh god please 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 um and you're in luck because for the next episode we are going to do the album imaginations from the other side by the german power metal band blind guardian holy crap okay now this is not a band that i'm into like, Me neither. Like, this is not a band that I have a lot of familiarity with, but I do know that along with Halloween and a few other bands, they are one of the stalwarts and progenitors, if you like, of the, you know, the classic power metal scene. And Imaginations from the Other Side was basically their breakthrough album. So that's why I've chosen that album. I have listened to it already. I mean, I did make sure that it wasn't terrible. <laughs> Um, so I have listened to it already. I'm not going in completely blind, haha. Um, but yeah, it's not an album that I'm overly familiar with. It's not a band I'm overly familiar with. So I'm looking forward to kind of learning about them and giving the album a real proper, thorough listening to over the next few weeks uh, in preparation for that album. And you say you you're not familiar with them really either. Uh, I probably have listened to some of their later stuff i mean they are still going yeah yeah just occasionally like when i because that's a name that i'm like oh i I know that name and so you feel like you need to check that stuff out but i don't know that i've ever even listened to this album right excellent well that's that's perfect and yeah so we'll both go in like relatively fresh and uh so we think and yeah do some classic power metal perfect so that's the next episode until then keep thrashing take care everyone Ah! Uh-huh.